Content warning. No Gods, No Monsters contains profanity, substance use, and a strong hatred for the police. Charlie, have have you ever read Roger Ebert's review of Godzilla 1954? I have not. You're familiar with Roger Roger Ebert? He had something to do with Siskel, right? Yeah, Siskel and Ebert was I know. a big show when I was growing up. The two thumbs up to them. But he uh he was very famous for his reviews where he'd give a, a rating out of out of four stars. So his review of Godzilla in 1954, what do you think he gave it out of four stars, if you had to guess? When did he review it? Um, I, I'm not sure it was posted to the internet in 2004, but I think it was in the 90s when they released the Japanese version to America, like, in a mainstream way. But it might have been earlier. I'm not sure. If it wasn't in this context, I would guess four out of four. But the re- I feel like you were asking me, because <laughs> it's not four out of four. Does, does he do halves? One yeah. and a half. One and a half out of four. On the head. One and a half out of four. Boom. That's Boom, why they call dude. me the Ebert Whisper. That's why they call you that. So, okay. So, this episode's going to have a lot of heaviness, uh, probably, because this is an intense movie. But I just wanted to start out in a different tone. I wanted to read you some excerpts of his review to see what you think, okay? Okay. Here's the first sentence, okay? This is a roller coaster of a sentence. Regaled for 50 years by the stupendous idiocy of the American version of Godzilla, audiences can now see the original Japanese version, which is equally idiotic, but <laughs> properly decoded was the Fahrenheit 9-11 of its time. What? <laughs> uh, so... There's a lot going to unpack there. What's the first thing that jumps out at you in that sentence? The first thing that jumps out is, I really hope that there's some reviews from when Fahrenheit 9-11 came out, and people are like, this is the Godzilla of our era. <laughs> well, I will say, if it's the Fahrenheit 9-11 of its era, I'm not sure why he gave Fahrenheit 9-11 four out of four stars in this one. <laughs> also, he acted like you have to decode this, and... He says some things that make me feel like he didn't watch it. Like, first of all, it's very clearly a movie about nukes. You don't have to... He even says later, it refers repeatedly to Nagasaki, H-bombs, and civilian casualties, and obviously embodies Japanese fears about uh, American nuclear tests. So what's the decoding going on? (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) But check this line out. In these days of flawless special effects, Godzilla and the city he destroys are equally crude. Godzilla at times looks uncannily like a man in a lizard suit, stomping on cardboard sets, as indeed he was and did. The the sets weren't made of cardboard, were they? No. No. And they were really, (laughs) like, like, sure, I don't care if you hate the movie, but don't lie. Like, he says quite a few things in this review that make it seem like he uh, did not. Go ahead. 
I just, like they were like intricately designed miniatures, like made like perfect scale so that they would they would be realistic. Like, yes, fuck. <laughs> and also like the special effects of I don't know we don't know when he wrote it, but whenever he wrote it, they weren't fucking flawless. <laughs> no, no, they were not. <laughs> I would much rather watch a man in a suit stomp on miniatures than some of that early fucking CGI. <laughs> like, totally. He ends it with. This is a bad movie, but it has earned its place in history, and the enduring popularity of Godzilla and other monsters shows that it struck a chord. Can it be a coincidence, in these years of trauma after 9-11, that in a 2005 remake, King Kong will march once again on New York? What do you think, Charlie? Is that a coincidence? Wait, what? He's saying that, uh, he's comparing 9-11 to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is problematic in my humble opinion yeah definitely 100 percent. he also gave godzilla 1998 1.5 stars the same amount as the original godzilla this is how he starts that review just to give you uh, some contrast i'm not going to know how to pronounce some of these things going to see godzilla at the palais of the Cannes film festival is it's like pronounced... attending what's it what'd you say it's pronounced gojira okay go ahead <laughs> Going to see Godzilla at the Palais or Palais, whatever, of the Cannes Film Festival is like attending a satanic ritual in St. Peter's Basilica. Basilica. It's a rebuke to the faith that the building represents. Godzilla is a big, ugly, ungainly device to give teenagers the impression they are seeing a movie. It was the festival's closing film coming at the end like the horses in a parade, perhaps for the same reason. What the fuck? <laughs> Which may be a fair review of 98, but he gave it the same rating as yeah. the original Godzilla. That seems so... So what do you think we should do about this? Let's fucking kill Robert Ebert. So he's already dead. I know. And his name's Roger. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> um, I think we need to get revenge, dude. Let's uh, revive Roger Ebert and then uh, get revenge on him. Hell yeah. Well, since you brought that up out of nowhere, I happen to know he's buried at Graceland Cemetery in Chicago, which is 4.7 hours from your house. <laughs> just... Since my... you brought that up, I thought I'd give you that info. <laughs> you know my address? Well, I, I estimated based on okay. where in St. Louis I thought you were. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I have... I took a vacation day next week, um, so fucking day tripping. I'm going to go get some revenge on this this, this stupid idiot, this stupid dead idiot. Um, Hell yeah, planning felonies on the pod. I should say, I think Roger Ebert died of like a horrible disease or cancer, so that sucks. And, you know, joking aside, that sucks. <laughs> we should probably cut that out. <laughs> Way to make it real. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate it. All right. Welcome to No Gods, No Monsters. Uh, we're the anti-capitalist kaiju podcast in a world where no one is coming to save us, not even the corpse of Roger Ebert. Um, I'm Rabbit, and I'm here with Charlie, and today we are finally in this kaiju podcast talking about Godzilla 1954, also known as Gojira. Charlie, why don't you give us your unbiased, non-editorialized synopsis of this film? Boats off the coast of Odo Island keep mysteriously being destroyed. 
Oda legend tells of an ancient sea monster whose appetite must be kept in check lest the monster come ashore and eat the islanders. It seems that said appetite has not been kept in check because lo and behold, a 165-foot-tall lizard attacks the island. Paleontologist Dr. Yamane is sent to Odo Island to investigate, and while there he discovers Godzilla, a dinosaur who has been awakened from hibernation and mutated by weapons testing in the ocean. It is very obvious that he has been woken from a slumber, because this sure is one cranky lizard. Meanwhile, a love triangle is unfolding between Dr. Yamane's daughter, Imiko, scientist Serizawa, and Ogata, a solid ship captain. When Amiko is going to break off her engagement to Serizawa due to her love for Ogata, she is shown what Serizawa's recent secret work has been, and it absolutely terrifies her. Now Godzilla starts taking the fight to Tokyo, and we see that he is in fact an anarcho-lizard, or an anarchosaurus if you may. Like a true anarchist, this lizard brings destruction wherever he goes and has absolutely no regard for the rules. He wreaks anarchy all across Tokyo, like a passage ripped straight from the conquest of bread. Nay, actually, Kropotkin wished he could write of anarchy as eloquently as Godzilla effortlessly displays it. The mad Antifa lad actually destroys the National Diet Building. Fire, death, calamity, everywhere the eye may gaze, true anarchy. <laughs> Godzilla then goes back to the ocean for a post-destruction nap, and while he's napping... Imiko and Ogata, combined with footage of the destruction, convince Serizawa that he must use his recent secret project, the Oxygen Destroyer, to destroy Godzilla, despite his fears of what governments may do if they were to learn of this Oxygen Destroyer. Serizawa sucker punches the sleeping Godzilla to death with his Oxygen Destroyer, while killing himself in the process to ensure governments can't get a hold of the technology. The end. Also, Godzilla has adorable, goofy eyes. Directed by Ishiro Honda. Produced by Tomoyuki Tanaka. Special effects by Iji, the father of Tokusatsu, Tsuburaya. Music by Akira Ifukube. Akira Takarada as Hideto Ogata. Momoki Kochi as Amiko Yamane. Akiiko Hirata as Dr. Daisuke Serizawa, smartly sane. If the oxygen destroyer is used even once, the politicians of the world won't stand idly by. They'll inevitably turn it into a weapon. A-bombs against A-bombs. H-bombs against H-bombs. As a scientist, no. As a human being, adding another terrifying weapon to humanity's arsenal is something I can't allow. Haruo Nakajima and Katsumi Suzuka as Godzilla, yelling, Rawr! And Takashi Shimira as Dr. Kyohei Yamane, telling the dummies that Godzilla was baptized in the fire of the H-bomb and survived, and presciently stating, I can't believe that Godzilla was the last of its species. If nuclear testing continues, then someday, somewhere in the world, another Godzilla may appear. Yes, uh, you heard it here, folks. Anarchy just means chaos, destruction. Well done, Charlie. Thanks for keeping it real. <laughs> I've read through. I've done my research. You do yours. All right, so for this episode, we did a lot more research and stuff than we normally have done on these so far. So we just wanted to cite some of our sources so that you all knew where we were getting some of this information. Obviously, some of it's just common knowledge or Wikipedia or whatever. But um, So I'll start. Um, I mostly got my information from a book called 
Mushroom Clouds and Mushroom Men, The Fantastic Cinema of Ishiro Honda by Peter H. Brothers. I also got some info from The History of Godzilla 1954, which is an awesome little YouTube, like, hour-long documentary by Big Action Bill on YouTube. Charlie, what did you uh, reference for this? I watched the Criterion Blu-ray, which has a commentary done by David Collette, and I also used, there was the illustrated audio essay by Greg Flugfelder on it called The Unluckiest Dragon about the Lucky Dragon incident. So I used that, and I used the book A Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla series by David Collat and Godzilla FAQ, or Godzilla Frequently Asked Questions by Brian Solomon. I should point out, there were some things on the Godzilla FAQ which I knew were wrong, so then that makes me question other stuff that I took as being correct. So I don't know. So if I re- if I say anything that's wrong, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that? It's not not our fault. Yeah, hit us up. We love corrections. Um, that way we know somebody's hearing us. So go for it. So obviously, Godzilla as a movie not only sparked uh, the longest running film franchise in history, but also created an entire genre right um i mean there it's godzilla is considered like the first kaiju film but there are obviously things that came before it that are very similar but it if it wasn't for it we probably wouldn't have so many giant monster movies but it was actually inspired by other movies which we've kind of watched i don't even know if i need to say anything this we've talked about king kong and beast of Twenty Thousand fathoms already i don't know what i'm doing yeah i mean basically Tanaka, Honda, and Tsuburaya, they saw Beast in 20,000 Fathoms and King Kong, and I hope you'll excuse me doing a Japanese voice here, but they said, Crikey, that's not a kaiju, this is a kaiju. And then they uh, made Godzilla, and that's basically what how history went. Totally. <laughs> All right, so as most people listening probably know, the political context for this movie is really fucking intense. Um, and with when talking about this movie, it's kind of hard to even know like where to start. But basically, 1954 is when this movie came out, and that was nine years after the end of World War II and nine years after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. All, those all happened in 1945. So, really quick overview, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the, the, the bombings of those cities in Japan were the only use of nuclear weapons in conflict in the history of the world. Hiroshima was bombed by the United States during World War II on August 6th, 1945. The attack killed between 90,000 and 146,000 people. Um, both through the initial bombing and radiation, and obviously it, like, leveled most of the city, and it was, I mean, the radiation issues, like, lasted for a long, long time. Uh, Nagasaki was bombed three days later on August 9th, 1945, that killed between 39,000 and 80,000 people, and roughly half of those deaths occurred the first day, and again, the rest were from radiation, and almost all the people who died were civilians. Um, as most people know, obviously, 
it's a fucking weird thing to talk about because Japan was like part of the Axis powers. It was working with fucking Germany and Hitler, and which is horrible. But also the like the emperor of Japan was making the decisions to go to war, and none of I don't think almost any of these people who were fucking murdered for this shit had any say in that or any part of that. So after World War Two, the United States occupied Japan and Japan basically was not allowed to have a military at all. Um, the United States was just holding them down basically. And in 1952, they left. So in 1951, a peace treaty was signed that had a lot of things in it from memory. I mean, part of it is that Japan was not allowed to have their own military, which is why they only have the self-defense forces or the SDF, which is commonly, which is basically like, it's like a loophole. It is their military, but they say it's part of their police. Um, but yeah, the United States left in 1952 and this movie came out in 1954. So like, even though this was nine years after those bombs dropped, like people in Japan weren't allowed to talk about those bombings. Like the United States completely censored them. You weren't allowed to talk about it in school. The media wasn't allowed to talk about it. People knew, but it was very like, uh, it was this like taboo thing to even discuss. So it's kind of crazy that this giant fucking lizard attacking the city and the special effects around it were actually like some of the first depictions of things like Hiroshima and Nagasaki and also we're gonna get into like the Lucky Dragon number five incident and the uh bombing of Tokyo like all of that is in this movie and it just it's it's hard to understand outside of context how powerful and intense this movie was because they they were seeing images that like were barely like 1954 the U.S. was gone, but they were still, like, keeping an eye, and people in Japan felt like they had to tiptoe around um, talking about this stuff. So this was, like, kind of as close as they could get at the time, from my understanding, uh, to actually depicting how fucking horrible the drama, dropping of nukes and other things on their country was. Whew! Um, yeah. Uh, anything to add to that, Charlie? <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a few things first and foremost what a fun episode this is yeah oh yeah this is a blast well it, um, hopefully it will be a fun episode but we got to give this context you know what i, I mean? know i know no you definitely need to do that but uh yeah you talked about how the civilians obviously they didn't have a, a role in it and they were the ones that took obviously the brunt of the nuclear um bombs and should probably point out that most a lot of the big people involved with this movie served in some way they were drafted in some way in the uh imperial army uh, suburaya did propaganda films honda served in manchuria and china the executive producer he was actually a war criminal he was branded a war criminal and he was a war criminal for his propaganda films and he was not supposed to ever work in film again but they they said fuck it We'll let him work in film again anyways, because he knows how to make money. Yeah, it is kind of interesting that, like, we're going to get more into it when we talk about the the people making the film specifically, but, like, some of the people making this movie that is, like, very, like, anti-war, anti-nukes, like, I mean, 
Ishiro Honda was a pacifist by the time he made this movie actually were like probably had a little more blood on their hands than most of the people who actually died in these bombings, which is fucking intense. Yeah. Um, Even though, I mean, because of their struck, like a lot of them, it's not like it would be their first fucking choice. You know, it's a fucking draft. You have an emperor, Um, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's intense. It's a lot to think about, you know? Also, I want to point out there was a movie in 1953 called uh, Hiroshima, which depicted the horrors of Hiroshima, um, although I don't think it got super wide distribution because of its controversial subject. That makes sense. Meanwhile, like Godzilla was extremely popular, like there were lines Mm. fucking down the street and it it broke box office records. Um, And maybe that's because of its distribution or maybe that's because it was a little easier to stomach and easier yeah. to like go see than something directly talking about something that happened that killed so many of these people's family members you know so yeah most i'm sure people listening to this podcast probably know but most people including me most of my life have no idea that godzilla is an extremely political film and it's interesting how quickly it stops being that maybe it never stops being that, but how quickly it gets silly and childish and very different because this first film, it's not like, like there's movies we talk about, like um, tech, the original Texas chainsaw massacre is like an animal rights film, but you really have to be looking for that to like, get it. Some people get it. Some people don't. This is not hiding what it is. It is extremely obviously an anti nuke film, you know? Yeah. It's, Kind of makes uh, the rest of Kaiju history seem kind of insulting. That uh, this is such a serious movie about such a serious subject, and then all of a sudden, uh, he, Godzilla is uh, slapping his son when he doesn't know how to breathe radiation properly. <laughs> like, yeah, I think if Ishiro <laughs> Honda and Subaraya hadn't been on board for so long, it would feel even more that way. Yeah. But it it almost feels like they were like, okay, we did that. Now it's time for us to have a, to like heal. And here's our thing. This is our thing. Like, I don't know. I've heard a lot of theories about like Godzilla stands for just nukes or like at the time, a lot more people thought Godzilla stood for like the soul of Japan responding to the nukes. So like maybe they're trying to carry that. I don't know. It's complicated as fuck. Yeah. Well, I mean, also it's a, uh... The studios had a lot to say in what direction the future films would take. So, uh, totally, I, I think Honda a lot of the time was not super stoked on the kind of more childish direction some of the show era films came, uh, went. But he was under contract with Toho, so he still just go through with making them. Agreed, totally agreed. And also, though, he did. It's not like they go from this to not political at all. There's politics yeah. in a lot of them. They just also are more lighthearted. It's like very soon after this, Mothra versus Godzilla is not necessarily anti-capitalist, but critiquing the the things that capitalism, the greed that capitalism makes you want to have and, and confining nature. And um, But it's like a silly film. And I think maybe... Yeah, they. Uh, I don't think they abandon it totally, but I hear what you're saying. It is. It is so. This movie is such a contrast, especially. I mean, we're about to talk about Godzilla raids again. It's night and day. It's just yeah. But also, like at the time when this first came out, 
most critics really hated it and they were like shocked and offended and it was so obviously about the bombings that they were like this is this is like crude this is like capitalizing on these horrors that we've experienced this is offensive and mostly negative but audiences some audiences were shocked and i mean a lot of audiences were shocked and some audiences were negative but mostly it was incredibly positive and it made a shit ton of money um so that's kind of an interesting kind of reminds me of some rotten tomatoes shit today but on a way way Mm. more i don't know guttural and and important level i don't know yeah i mean it was it was like a it's probably a, a an avenue of national catharsis over something that they weren't allowed to talk about in a national context, in a popular context. Um, Absolutely. So I'm sure Japanese audiences were, I'm sure, I mean, I can't even imagine what kind of a chord it would have struck with them. Totally. I literally, I cannot imagine what it must have been like seeing this movie after, like at that time. Like there's no... Roger Ebert's comparisons to Fahrenheit 9-11 aside, there is no <laughs> possible way to compare with like some of the greatest atrocities ever carried out in human his- history being channeled into a giant monster movie. Like yeah. what that must have felt like, I can't even, I don't, there are no words. All right, well, let's get into a couple of the creators. Um, the director of this film was Ishiro Honda. Charlie, do you want to kind of give us a little bit of info on him? All right. Ishiro Honda was born in May 7th, 1911. He was the son of a Buddhist priest. And as a child, he would love to go to the movies by himself. And then he would go home and act the films he saw out for his father. And so we see here we have the seed for a fantastic monster movie maker. Uh, He attended Nihon University's College of Art. And in 1933, before completing his degree, he was hired as a cameraman. And he started moving up through the studio system. But at the same time, in 1936, he was drafted. And he ended up serving three tours of duty between 1936 and 1945 uh, in Manchuria and China. Whenever he was home, he would continue work at uh, working as a filmmaker at Toho Studios. And... In 1945, he became a uh, Chinese uh, prisoner of war. And while he was a prisoner of war, he learned about the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he was released in August of that year uh, after Japan surrendered. One of the first things he saw after coming home was the ruins of Hiroshima. And it was something that left a lasting impression on him. And that, combined with all of his war experiences, turned him into a lifelong pacifist. And he became obsessed with wanting to translate the horrors of war to film. 1949, he was an assistant director on Stray Dog, which is an Akira Kurosawa movie. Akira Kurosawa was a friend of his, a neighbor and friend, and he would work with Akira Kurosawa throughout his life into both of the later years. Uh, I assume most people listening know who Akira Kurosawa was. If you don't, he's he's considered one of the greatest Japanese filmmakers. And when it comes from a Western perspective, he is generally considered the greatest. Um, definitely the most well-known and most influential on American filmmakers. And yeah, Honda was a close friend of his. They worked together for a long time. He did a lot of uh, the shoots on Stray Dog and... You'll see that relationship in 
Honda's movies because he'll use a lot of the same actors and crew members that Kurosawa would use. In 1951, he uh, directed his first feature film, which he also co-wrote. And then in 1954, he was hired to direct Project G, which I don't know what that G could stand for. It was giant at the time. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I stood for giant, then it became Gojira. That's what I meant. Obviously, it's giant. <laughs> yeah, we all we all knew you meant that. <laughs> I was actually thinking gorilla whale, but um, yeah, he rewrote the scripts and he brought a lot of different things to the script that weren't in there before. Because the original was just that... kind of a ripoff of yeah, uh, Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, right? It wasn't super political, even though they had wanted it to be. Yeah, it was just a complete ripoff, basically of. Beast of 20,000 Fathoms and uh, Honda and can't think of, he had somebody he co-wrote it with, I want to say Murata. It's something like that. And um, I know Tanaka did the actual like story and then they sent it off to a guy to write it and then that written version wasn't what Tanaka wanted and Ishiro Honda like fixed it. Um, right. Um, for sure. I don't think Tanaka necessarily saw it as political as Honda did. but Totally. He definitely, no, he didn't. He definitely was inspired by the Lucky Dragon incident in particular, I believe. Um, totally. Yeah, and Honda hoped that Godzilla would help bring him into nuclear testing, which was a very cute. It's a very cute thing to hope, Honda. Um, yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. But also, <laughs> our podcast is going to put an end to capitalism. So. <laughs> we, uh, Honda walked so we could run, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it, basically. Is there anything you wanted to add about him? Uh, no. I mean, he's just that. I mean, he's a dope director. He did like half or more of the Showa films, and I don't know. I I like his style. I th- I feel like he has a he's like a legitimately good director. Like the this movie yeah. is directed very well, and it's it's kind of. People describe it often as documentary style. I don't fully get that, but I, I, I get a little bit of it. But, oh, I guess one thing I wanted to add was that um you were saying that Honda was a pacifist his whole life and that he, like, in a way, just, like, one of his driving motivations was to end wars and stuff. And I thought it was interesting. I saw a thing about how he, he kept a mortar shell on his desk through his whole life until he died that hit him or hit next to him in war but was supposed to explode and didn't as like a sign of of remembering that he's only alive because like a bomb didn't work it's fucking crazy wow. yeah that's gnarly I did not yeah know there's a lot to say about him he's awesome and he directed a lot of awesome movies that we'll be talking about soon for sure yeah i mean i mean he's like the most important director in this genre of movies that we're doing a podcast about i mean he did well he did fucking Godzilla, but then he did uh, a bunch of other Godzillas, and he did a bunch of other. He did Mothra, Rodan. Uh, just it, he was the, the I almost said king, but no, 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 he was not a king. He, but he was he was the, a god. He was a god. <laughs> he was a monster. wait. No gods. No gods. Okay, so Shiro Honda is the director, and then. Eiji Tsuburaya was the special effects director, and I feel like the way Japanese uh, 
I don't know how to put it. The Japanese film industry works different than what I assume the American film industry works. Is that like the special effects director is like the director during the scenes that are special effects. Special effects. It's not like a Shiro Honda is directing the scenes with Godzilla and then Subaraya is just making sure the special effects work well. Like I think like he's Subaraya is like literally just doing those scenes and Ishiro Honda is mm-hmm. doing the human scenes. Is that is that your read on it? Yeah, that's basically how how they did it, yeah. Totally. So he's kind of almost just as much a director as Honda, which is interesting. So Eiji Subaraya is like 10 years older than Honda. Basically, he was really into things like model planes and stuff as a kid and and like was really into like taking cameras apart and seeing how they worked and and just like kind of uh into tech and stuff. And when he saw King Kong in 1933, it totally changed his life and he decided like he wanted to do special effects, which were at the time like not really a thing in Japan, like it was kind of looked down upon as like like tricking the audience or something, but he really wanted to do it. He was a big innovator in Japan. He was the first to introduce like an elevated crane uh, for filming uh, static mats and double exposures on Japanese film. He was like most Japanese films would do like straight shots all the time. And he was really into like super low and super high angles. He also like, as Charlie mentioned earlier, he worked for like the propaganda wing of the Japanese military during World War II. So he made pro Japanese uh, uh, propaganda films. Um, The most famous one was the 1942 film, The War at Sea from Hawaii to Malaysia or Hawaii More Oki Kaisen, which recreated the attack on Pearl Harbor and the sinking of English battleships and the special effects that he used were so convincing that like the U S military thought that it was actual footage of Pearl Harbor being bombed. And for decades after, um, and like even up to the printing of this fucking, uh, mushroom clouds and mushroom men book I'm reading even up till then was still being used mistakenly as actual footage of Pearl Harbor in documentaries about Pearl Harbor. Um, so it's kind of this, this really intense, a character arc or I don't really know because I don't know how into it he was or if it was just like well I have to be part of war so I'm going to do something I have no idea but like he was making pro-war movies and then ended up being a driving force behind the success of a very anti-war movie and franchise um it's it's a fucking trip um but yeah he ended up being i think he was the special effects director for almost every showa era godzilla movie and there were ones that like he didn't even have his hands in that much that his name was on because he was just so well known for that stuff um but he really was an innovator that clearly made this movie what it was like godzilla has so many unique and groundbreaking special effects especially for the budget um uh that uh, a non-american movie would have and uh he's definitely a big part behind the success of this like genre yeah well i think i referred to him as the father tokusatsu in uh true my intro tokusatsu for people who don't know is like uh what special effects film basically yeah which which kaiju is considered a subgenre subgenre of and dai kaiju is a subgenre of kaiju which actually is the full name for giant monster movies but kaiju is basically just what people call it now so a couple other things is um 
yeah, he was such a big fan of King Kong, he actually ended up acquiring his own personal print of King Kong, and he would study it frame by frame to figure out how they did that those effects. When it came to Godzilla, he actually calculated that it would take... He wanted to do stop-motion animation, and he calculated it would take uh, seven years, I believe, to to do the movie in stop-motion. And the producers basically laughed in his face and was like, yeah, you have... I forgot, it was like eight months, six months, something like that. <laughs> so that's why he came up with the uh, suitmation. Um, people often laugh when they see Godzilla movies because it's just like, oh, that's just a guy in a rubber suit. Um, that's not realistic at all. But he was a firm believer in the power of fantasy, and he was not super interested in uh, realism, but more just... Uh, transporting the viewer's mind to a more fantastical realm i guess and and it is interesting like how like when i first watched one of the movies where somebody's wearing a suit i'm like oh that's a guy in a suit but like i bear now that i'm in it i barely think about that now i just am like oh yeah. that's what godzilla's doing like i do think about it but it's in a different way where like i am transported and i imagine that where i'm at now is closer to where audiences at the time would have felt just seeing it as, like, something so fantastical. And, yeah, like, a lot of the effects in this movie, it was, like, I mean, he was an innovator. This was stuff that they were doing on the fly, figuring out on the fly, and successfully applicating. Like, this, uh, I mean, I don't think the movie often gets enough credit for that. Um, he was incredibly innovative here. And, and in the film industry that, as you pointed out, they did not appreciate special effects in the Japanese film industry, but he went balls out and completely, completely changed the Japanese film industry. Because after this, it was like, yeah, he, like father of Tokusatsu, like he special effects became a big suitmation became a huge thing, miniatures, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have Power Rangers, you know. That's yeah. That's a shame. <laughs> Think about that. We wouldn't have Power Rangers. So. Those are two of the big names. There are so many people we could shout out for this. Uh, Akira Ifakube, the composer. Hajime Koizumi, the cinematographer, uh, like producer. Tanaka. I feel like if we go into them right now, we're never going to finish this. Are you down to just like talk about them as they come up while we're going? What do you think? Jim? Yeah, that that works. Sweet. Um, so let's, uh, can you, can you just throw out while we're here, what, what were the names of the two people who played Godzilla? I feel like that's a pretty big one that we should, men we should shout out because they did not have an easy time. Yeah. So the two people that played Godzilla, I believe they were both Toho, um, uh, stuntmen, stuntmen. Yeah. They were Haru Nakajima and Katsumi Tezuka. Katsumi Tezuka was older, and according to Nakajima, none of Tezuka's footage actually made it into the movie, which we don't know whether or not that's true, because they were in a fucking Godzilla costume. Well, Nakajima is the actor who is most uh, um, affiliated with uh, with Godzilla. He 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 played uh, Godzilla in 12 movies. Damn. Um, and the other yeah. guy, sorry, I for always forget his name. What was the other guy's name? Katsumi Tezuka. He often played other kaiju in a lot of those movies too um like the rivals and stuff like that so they both had a long history but nakajima kind of won the godzilla battle as being like he yeah. became godzilla right yeah i mean i think nakajima was younger and probably more 
fit. I don't know. Um, also, he had... Oh, I forget what it was called. It was like Eagles of the Sky or something. There was a movie that almost all the people on Godzilla, like Honda, Subaraya, a bunch of these people made before this movie that had like... It, God, it was like a, uh, a military movie about planes and stuff. And uh, Nakajima was the only stuntman willing to do like this crazy stunt with one of the planes where it like lit, lit on fire. And so that's why they like decided to pick him because he was like the only one willing to do stuff and he did it really well. Yeah, and he took uh, the Godzilla role really seriously. Um, yeah. He actually borrowed uh, Subaraya's copy of King Kong and he studied it to figure out how to move. And he went to the zoo and he would study yeah. bear bears moving to figure out how Godzilla should move. Bears and elephants was what he decided to choose the like the walking on. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of uh, Godzilla himself. So I think one of the things that makes this movie stand out compared to like a King Kong or a Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is that this is like the first movie monster whose design actually like the design came from the concept of what it represented in the movie rather than just being like a spectacle or trying to be scary. Godzilla is supposed to be like nuclear war incarnate. You know what I mean? Um, and they that kind of shows itself in the creature design, you know? So, yeah, Godzilla's skin was, uh, it was, uh, made to be alligator-like in order to simulate keloid scarring, which would take place in radioactive burn victims. So fucking intense. So, like... Fun episode. Fun episode. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, the skin's supposed to look like, you know, radiation fucking affecting the skin, uh... The head was shaped specifically so that when it peeked its way over a hill um, in that first shot, it would kind of look like the silhouette of a mushroom cloud. Yeah, uh, they originally hired a, a manga artist to draw designs for Godzilla, and one of his original designs was actually a creature with a mushroom head. Yeah, and if you if you look up original Godzilla designs, there's some that just look like way more mushroom cloudy and they're really cool i really yeah. recommend people do that the roar itself was supposed to be reminiscent of the air raid siren um that happened like when bombs were dropping in japan which is so intense and um akira ifukube the composer of the movie he made the sound of the of the roar by taking the lowest string of a contrabass out and then pulling the remaining strings using a resin-coated glove and then reversing and slowing down the, the recording. And that's how he got it. And it's, it's like, iconic. I mean, it's still used today. Obviously, Godzilla's atomic breath is supposed to be, like, an atomic blast. And then finally, like, unlike most of these monsters, the, like, Godzilla specifically was given kind of human-like facial features because Godzilla was always supposed to be... Uh, like a human made uh a creature and like humanity was always supposed to be kind of the actual enemy and so that's supposed to be embodied in godzilla which is one of the reasons i think godzilla is just such a fucking prolific character and such a like you can't top the design you know what i mean like it's just it's 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 lasted so long all right uh so now we were just going to go through the movie kind of beginning to end, not focusing on characters too much, but just talking about scenes and uh, 
all the crazy shit that happens in this movie. So, uh, yeah, dude, opening title and sound effects. I, I feel like this opening is so weirdly modern for the time. Maybe I just haven't watched enough old movies, but like, it just is so just like, boom, like black background, white giant letters in your face, no music at first, stomping sounds and growls. It's like heavy and intense and it like shakes your body. It I don't know. It just yeah. gets to me right off the bat. It's just like, you are watching Godzilla now. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the opening is super intense. That's a, such an awesome opening credit scene where you just hear the fucking stomp, stomp, the roar, stomp, roar. And then all of a sudden, uh, Ifukube's fucking awesome theme just comes in. It's such a great opening credits. Um, do not fast forward through the opening credits in this movie. I'm a, I'm an opening credits fast forwarder. I don't give a fuck, but I've never <laughs> even been tempted in this movie. Like, it's just like, boom, fuck you. Like, right in your <laughs> face. Um, and then the opening scene, which is so intense but so fast the very opening with the fishing boat the uh ikomaru is so fast and then all the following boats it's 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 really intense one thing i noticed in this movie for a movie that's not really associated with uh not 100 percent associated with like boats and the sea there are a shit ton of fucking boat scenes in this right they're an island nation bro I know, I I mean, I get that, but damn, there's yeah. a lot of boat scenes in this. <laughs> um, Yeah, I mean, it, it starts with a fucking boat scene, and then, I don't know, I I like the opening a lot. I think one of the, the bubbling up from the water effect looks a little bad nowadays, but, like, you just get, like, these people on a boat having a chill time, and then a flash on their faces, you know, that's supposed to represent, like, the nuclear blast, and... Well, I guess before we go too deep into it, this is the the opening with the boats is supposed to be like to to audiences at the time. It was like obviously referencing the Lucky Dragon number five nuclear testing incident, which we've referenced a bunch, but haven't gone into. Charlie, do you want to like talk about that a bit? Yeah. So the Lucky Dragon incident, I think this is something a lot of uh, American audiences don't know much about. Um, Even fans of Godzilla, I think probably a lot probably just see the movie as a metaphor for uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they don't. Uh, probably a lot of them don't know about the Lucky Dragon incident. The Lucky Dragon incident, it took place on March 1st, 1954. So the same year. There was a fishing vessel called the Lucky Dragon Number no. 5. It was fishing out by uh, Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands, and they all of a sudden saw a huge blast across the horizon. And then eight minutes later, they heard the blast. And all of a sudden, it was snowing. And it was snowing all over their boat. One of them even said he tasted the snow. And they started scooping up the snow with their bare hands. It was getting in their, all in their hair, all over their skin. Holy fucking shit. They found out later, I don't remember if it was a week or a couple weeks later, that what they had been scooping up, what they started referring to as death ash, was ash from an H-bomb test that uh, known as Castle Bravo that the U.S. was conducting 
in the Pacific Ocean. Apparently in that area, in the Marshall Islands area, the U.S. conducted a total of 67 nuclear tests there. And this was the first H-bomb test. And all the crew members, they were showing signs of radiation sickness. One of them, the radio operator, ended up dying from it. America refused to admit responsibility. There is even an official who claimed that, because there was a uh, danger zone that was set up, but the fishing vessel was outside the danger zone because the test was a lot stronger than what the Americans were expecting. It was like 2.5 times yeah, bigger, right? It, like something it, the scientists yeah. were just totally wrong. It's like, dude, it's your first time dropping an H-bomb. You don't know what you're doing. Just drop it near the country. You already just, ah, what? Yeah, it was, it was a, a thousand times stronger. It would, it could have destroyed a thousand Hiroshima's, a thousand Nagasaki's. That's how fucking strong this blast was. 15 megatons of destruction. I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty fucking bad. I wouldn't want to deal with one megaton of destruction. But yeah, they had set up a danger zone, and so there were some U.S. officials that were saying, oh, they were actually inside the danger zone. Oh, uh, we think maybe they were spies trying to spy on U.S. Uh, weapon technology, just trying to muddy the waters and try to push the blame. Eventually, they ended up paying um, $2 million to the fishery that the boat was a part of, and uh, $5,600 to each crew member. Although that doesn't do the dead guy a lot of good, or his uh, children or wife, he's pretty little compensation for. Also, uh, money doesn't make your life not suck now that you have radiation poisoning and a fear of God in you for the rest of your fucking life. Like, yeah, <sighs> yeah, and uh, this this whole incident really strained Japanese and American relations, which it should have. I read an interesting tidbit where. One of them, one of the crew members wrote a book and he talked about how the uh, Japanese foreign minister seemed to be more like on the Americans side. Like the Americans sent like two doctors basically who just seemed to be collecting data instead of giving a fuck about them. And the Japanese foreign minister kept insisting that the doctors be there and that he really just seemed to be more just trying to smooth things over with America than really giving a shit about all the crew members. Yeah, and this whole incident led to a huge anti-nuclear movement in Japan. Um, One-third of the Japanese population signed an anti-nuclear petition, and it actually also really hurt the fishing industry in Japan because uh, people were terrified of... Um, apparently, for months later, they were finding uh, irradiated fish in the ocean there. Yeah, I thought they just, like, pulled all the fish at the time from the shelves, like, immediately, but I'm not sure. Well, I think originally there was fear of distribution of the fish that were on that boat in boats around the area, but also I think they were, when they were fishing in months afterwards, they were still bringing up irradiated fish. Gotcha. Yeah. Whew! So... Fun, fun episode. Yeah, so... That's what this first, the very first scene, like you're sitting down to watch Godzilla and the very first scene is a very quick scene of a bunch of fishermen getting blasted by an unknown thing, screaming, and the boat sinking, and then another boat going after it and sinking, and another boat going after it and sinking. One thing I really thought they did well was he, 
Honda immediately focuses on the depictions of like the friend, like it, it shows the Coast Guard office, but then it also shows like the friends and family of the fishermen, like begging for information and the Coast Guard, like keeping information from them, you know? And I know at the time, because the U.S. had pulled out, but they were still like, as you mentioned about like, like they're obviously so like tied in to the government. Um, so it was very like taboo to talk about this. I don't know to what level they were allowed to, but I think that like this opening scene kind of shows like the lack of transparency. Like we don't know what happened. There's no Godzilla. You can't see Godzilla. We don't know what destroyed it. And at the time, a lot of people didn't, you know what I mean? So they scooped up some of the ash and they put it in a bag, which they hung next to their uh, beds in the, in the, on the ship, which was not uh the greatest thing to have done and i believe america did not tell them what was up and they ended up finding that it was finding out that it was from an h-bomb test from a uh, professor who basically did a, a survey on the ash that they brought him um, so and that's how sure. they found out america did not tell them that that was what happened good call america I feel like you could easily watch this movie like I would watch any horror movie and be like, there's a flash, a boat sank. Oh, there's mystery. I wonder what's happening. And that works by itself. But when you know mm -hmm. all this and when if you were living in Japan at the time and knew any of this, this works so well. Like it's there's so much going on in these super fast cut opening sequences. And I'm kind of surprised at how fast these sequences go, considering that it was 1954 and most movies at that time don't aren't this quick but it's like so fast and there's mystery and then there's these family members and friends begging the government for answers the coast guard won't say anything and then if the coast guard does anything the people distrust the government immediately or distrust officials they're like they have the names they have the names they're not telling us and they try to storm in the door and I feel like it just does a really good job of of using a a single a single incident on a boat, a single uh, uh, a room in a Coast Guard office to show like what was happening nationwide with information around this kind of stuff. Totally. All right, so we move from the. I mean, we're going to be going like kind of scene by scene to the to the big scene. So the next basic one is Odo Island, which. I guess I should mention here, I th I think that we're going to have an issue again with my subtitles being torrented and yours being the official ones, because I think things are going to be a little different. Like mine said Odo Island, O-H-T-O, and I'm assuming from everything I've read that yours say Odo Island, O-D-O. Is that right? That is correct. For sure. So let's just keep a, uh, an eye on that. The reason, the thing that tipped me off to that is earlier you said something like, a-bombs versus A-bombs, H-bombs versus H-bombs, and in mine, it was like bombs versus bombs, missiles versus missiles. It's a very different thing. I think I got that quote from online, but I think that was a translation in my movie. So yeah, um, it's just kind of interesting, but luckily, yeah. Odo and Odo sound almost the same, so we can just yeah. cruise on through. Yeah, for a second when you are like, it was Odo and mine, I was like, isn't that what I said before? <laughs> 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 I guess right off the bat, the first thing that comes to mind is how crazy it is to think about that there were villages like this, you know, like no cars as far as I can tell, just kind of living off the land in traditional ways that were being affected by fucking nuclear bombs. Like just the <laughs> contrast 
between people's lives and like global politics is so alarming in this to me. Did you get that feeling or do you know what I mean at least? I know what you mean now that you pointed that out. That didn't really occur to me while watching it, but yeah, one hundred percent. There's just but I mean, even not even thinking about like a small village, it's just so many people who like politics are just not at all a part of their life and they just know absolutely nothing about politics and just think that those people are just all of a sudden faced with Yeah. You know, just these huge things that happen in the area based on uh these global these fucking stupid global conflicts and And my understanding you mentioned the Bikini Atoll um with Lucky Dragon five, but my understanding is that some like villages of indigenous folks were affected by the radiation too. So it's like, this wasn't just something happening near them. This was like ruining their, like, yeah. Ugh. I think I also read that there were like other lesser known, uh, fishing boats that they like later found out were like in the blast radius that were affected. Oh shit. Just not to the same degree as the lucky dragon five. All that lighthearted stuff aside, um, we go to this island and there's the villagers and they know about Godzilla, right? They have like this traditional, it's it's part of their mythos. I was kind of confused by this. Is the Godzilla that that's the legend of this island, is that the same Godzilla? Or is this just coincidence that this Godzilla arising matches up with their idea of this uh, ancient sea monster? Yeah, I think the the issue comes right, and whether the the nuclear radiation like created this Godzilla, because if so, then it can't be the one from their myths, right? But I feel like the only way, because they they do say later that the this monster has been living underwater for a long time, and then mm-hmm. the nuclear blasts destroyed its food source, so it came out. Yeah. So I feel like. The only way that I can square it in my headcanon or whatever is that there was a beast of legend that was real, that was attacking, like that was eating the fish and that was attacking the villages long, long ago enough for it to be passed down. But that the nuclear testing, A, made it much more fierce and different and B, made it come back. Yeah. When I think about this series, that's not how I think about it. But when I'm thinking about just that line, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. But it it reminds me of like Star Wars A New Hope or a lot of first movies in a long series where it doesn't actually kind of jive with the rest. I'm also thinking, we also know that there's more than one Godzilla. There's at least two of them. So who knows what it could be throughout the years. I I mean, it depends on which canon. Like in... I know. (laughs) Yeah, in Showa, there's two... I still yeah. think of it as one. I should have put... Yeah. It's complicated. I know. And yeah. at this point, they were probably only thinking of the one. Exactly. I'm sure they were. So, the villagers are talking about how they think that Godzilla or Gojira is to blame for the fish being depleted and all this stuff. And for the disappearances of people. And they talk about the Godzilla from the old days. And they talk about how they used to sacrifice girls to this Godzilla and to me that seemed like a direct reference to King Kong yeah I think that was also like we see like the ceremony that they that they do to like uh the appease the the sea creature the exorcism ceremony yeah 
yeah, that's also, I think, a reference probably to um, King Kong. Totally, totally. And I, I, I don't think this, I'm not sure what they meant by this necessarily, but the whole like this one ceremony is all that remains of this tradition to me kind of grounded in the fact this like the whole theme like the small theme of of a small village that doesn't have that much to do with globalization or like the urbanization of japan uh kind of living alongside it and that their traditions are falling away and they only have one tradition left that has to do with this thing you know Mm. So then we have the actual attack on the island, which just like the Lucky Dragon 5 incident, we don't see Godzilla, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think of this? Um, yeah, apparently the original, we talked about how Honda and I'm pretty sure it's Murata rewrote the, the script. Um, and the original Godzilla actually was supposed to appear here, but oh. they wanted to uh, delay it. Um, just like Cooper wanted to delay the showing of Kong, but yeah, I think it was a. I think it's a super effective way to build suspense of what's happening, what this, uh, what the monster looks like, what it is. Um, obviously, we know because it's you know almost <laughs> seventy years later that yeah. uh, <laughs> we know what it is. But I think that it, it's still uh, well watching. It still does help build the suspense and. Um, you really kind of feel it helps build up the the relating to the horror that these uh characters are feeling. Totally, I I think that like for me this scene, I mean the use of miniatures and stuff is really good. The like the use of miniatures outside with the people then inside the sets that are falling apart is like pretty seamless and like I I fully buy it. You know, it feels mm-hmm. like they're in it on a symbolic or allegorical level. This scene works to me, especially because, like, those winds kind of remind me of footage of, like, nuclear uh, bomb testing where those winds just, like, whip the trees over. You know, it looks a lot like that and the tiles coming yeah. off of roofs. So that works to me on that level. But as, like, showing us hints of Godzilla, it doesn't actually work that well to me because it feels like a storm like what are those winds what do those have to do with godzilla it's kind of confusing it almost like when i watch it again every time it kind of feels like oh is there a hurricane oh that was godzilla wait why were there wind it's just i don't know if you felt that way but that's how always the feeling i get yeah that 100 percent makes sense i that never crossed my mind but like yeah we're not supposed to believe that storms occur around godzilla yeah so that's just uh, yeah that's really hilarious yeah. <laughs> to think about that. It's it's uh, to me, yeah, it's almost like I don't know why, but uh Godzilla versus Adora pops into my head right now of like it's like the symbolism matters, not what actually happened. Uh, like in this it's like the the fact that it's a Hiroshima a nuclear bomb like thing is what matters, the fear of that, mm. not necessarily the fact that Godzilla doesn't create wind. I don't know if that makes sense. Right. It's it's the fact that this essence brings this ultimate horror to the to this area and ultimate horror includes just nature and yeah. all just kind of uh, being catastrophic. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. It kind of reminds me so I don't forget it kind of reminds me of uh, 
when Godzilla is near the casino ship and is swimming and everybody's screaming and then Godzilla swims away, we're hearing like, boom, 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 footsteps. But there yeah. would be no footsteps. It's underwater. But to me, I hadn't thought about the wind thing till now, but like that seems like a parallel where there wouldn't be footsteps, but the footsteps themselves were supposed to symbolize the sound of bombs getting closer and closer and closer before they hit you. And so it's like, it doesn't matter that his feet aren't literally hitting the ocean floor, making those sounds. His presence is the incoming bombs. It's all symbolic. And that's, that's, I, it's like, I could read it two ways, right? Just like the wind, just like the footsteps. I could read it as, them making mistakes and not fully thinking it through because it was rushed or I could read it mm. as an artistic choice and it has a very different outcome depending on how I look at it. Right. You know? I, in the similar vein, there's another scene later, which I'm sure we'll talk about when Godzilla is attacking Tokyo and there is a mother with two children and she's, she's saying, we'll be with, with dad soon. And a lot of people interpret that as, uh, uh, their dad died in uh, World War II during uh, Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Yeah. Um, and as David Collette points out in his commentary, that doesn't make sense because that would have happened nine years ago and those kids are younger than nine years old. Mm. So is that an error? Yes. Yeah. Is that actually what Honda is trying to reference? Is he trying to say something else? Like, but it's still, generally speaking to the viewer, that's what it conjures is images that their dad died in the nuclear bombing. Yeah, like I'm not doing the math at yeah. that time. I'm not. Yeah. The winds is a little iffier, but like the footsteps, like the. I, I'm, I didn't think about those till I was like watching it for like whatever, the sixth time or something. As is a thing in film, you know, like once is random, twice is a coincidence, three times is, is a pattern. And I could easily see that as three things showing like, oh, this is a technique being used in the film to disregard, to, to show things that fly in the face of, of the reality of what would be happening in the situation for the sake of, of symbolism or artistic expression. But I could also just see it as three mistakes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Very possible. I mean, this was a pretty rushed production, so... Yeah, especially in today's standards, but even at the time. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So, okay, so the, the village is attacked, and then the next scene we have is the meeting. I'm not sure where it's at. Maybe you are with the the paleontologist and, like, experts in the public and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, I think in uh, David Collat's commentary, I think he was saying that this was supposed to be the, the diet, which is, like, their their parliament, their government body. But like gotcha. that building, that building seems smaller than what I would expect um, the their government body to be operating out of. So I'm not entirely sure where that was. But yeah, basically it's uh, the government discussing what happened in Odo Island. I mean, there's, I don't have much to say about the scene other than that it's, it's kind of a, it, it re reminds me a lot of a scene from the beast from 20,000 fathoms where they're first discussing like who the beast is and what it's coming from with the, with the paleontologist. And it kind of sets a tone of like the kind of scenes we could come to expect in kaiju movies for quite a bit of time. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
it's just uh, the scientists describing uh, what's going on with this uh, uh, extreme creature that nobody's seen before. At, since you and I are, as we've said many times, amateur cryptozoologists, I really appreciated that uh, the paleontologist brought up which, first of all, it's funny that they brought a paleontologist and they're like, you think it's a dinosaur? That's hilarious. It's like, why'd you bring a paleontologist? That's his entire job. Um, I also, when they introduced him, I, there's like applause or something. Isn't there? Am I, remember, <laughs> I don't remember. remember that? It just seems very weird. And they're like, and, oh, the paleontologist is here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then he brings up Yeti footprints being found yeah. recently. And the Earth's many deep pockets, which I love the connections to cryptozoology happening there. But I also love that they're talking about things like hollow Earth that are still in uh, movies coming out about Godzilla in 2021. It's fucking awesome. Um, also, in the the next scene where he's in the government building um, discussing this, he talks about uh, dinosaurs being like two million years old or something. Yeah. He's like, they're uh, older than that, buddy. <laughs> yes. they. It's uh, not super accurate. They actually, I think, correct it, uh, I think, in Godzilla Rids again, because he's in it again. Um, okay. And I think that they correct it there, but it is funny. Like, two million, you're like 63 million years off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit off. Okay, so the paleontologist Yamane and his daughter Amiko... Uh, then go back to Odo Island to check it out. And one of the first things he does, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like this scene seems so mundane ish, like to me watching it. Cause I've seen so many horror films and like Kaiju films where shit is so like nasty and explosive, but like just them taking little tests and, and realizing like there's radiation in the soil and the well water isn't, is fucked up from it is like, just a fucking trip because like like this is something that i think would be truly horrifying at the time right the idea that a beast could like walk and where he everywhere he walked there would be radiation that could get people sick you know well i think isn't one of the details that like the water on the other side of the island yes wasn't irradiated so it's a small like, area yeah which i thought was just a fun little detail um, totally yeah, yeah, it's like they're they're saying this doesn't act like the radiation we know. This is something new. Yeah. But still the idea that like wherever Godzilla goes there's radiation, that doesn't fly with any other Godzilla movie I've ever seen. Yeah, that's that's a pretty nuts concept. Um Yeah. Especially when Godzilla starts being like a hero to humanity. They're like, Come on, Godzilla, help <laughs> fight and then it's like, but oh shit, now we can't go back to the city for fucking twenty years. Yeah. Or probably longer. But yeah, that's just like a an aspect of this being more of like a horror film than the others, you know? Yeah, one hundred percent. So what did you think of the first Godzilla appearance, Charlie? <laughs> um <laughs> How's that puppet treating you? <laughs> I mean in twenty twenty one as a horror um scene it doesn't really pull off but it's I like it. I enjoyed it. It's it's lovable. It's I, I but I, I just wanna I wanna hug him. 
I just think it's so funny. Like, so I think the effects of him sticking up over the edge and the people running, other than the actress who plays Amiko, like laughing while they're running because she wasn't taking the role seriously, apparently. Uh, but other than that, it looks really good to me, like effects wise. But mm -hmm. the puppet of Godzilla looks so haggard and <laughs> lopsided compared to the suit. And it's yeah. so stark in that opening. You know what I mean? His head just looks like deflated. Yeah. But like, I can let go enough that I enjoy it now. I'm like, oh shit, a giant monster. But when I first saw it, I was like, is that what he looks like? Like, <laughs> Yeah, 100%. Um, that's one thing I think about, like, you know, if I told, you know... People who are, who are used to modern films to to watch this, like, what would they think? And that's like one of the first things I think of where they would just be like, "What the fuck is this? Come on!" <laughs> yeah, the um, opening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first. But, I mean, I, I, yeah, I enjoy it. I, I like it. I <laughs> totally. But it's definitely from a from a different perspective, I guess, than than uh what did someone else would come to it at through i guess yeah it's it's kind of interesting that like maybe the effects were so wild at the time or they were just working with what they had that they just they just did it but to me you'd think that the first showing of the monster you'd want to show your best monster and they mm -hmm. clearly were like they got the effect to look good but the monster head is so silly and weird um but that aside it's an awesome opening, right? You have the villagers all freaking out on this awesome landscape, and then he just sticks up over this fucking horizon like a, a fucking mushroom cloud or like just the, this larger-than-life thing. And then the next thing we see is that overhot headshot of the matte painting of the footprints with the tail print, you know? And mm. both of those together, like the grotesqueness of him sticking over the horizon and then the kind of elegance of those footprints, I feel like is kind of an awesome, beautiful intro to a monster. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned like that's how this is the intro to the monster and it's not the best monster. And we mentioned earlier that Honda, the original script, had the monster appearing earlier. And he's mm. like, no, 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 I want to delay it for more effect. Yeah. And then this is what comes out for that effect is like oh you really should have pulled that off better yeah um, do you know the original was supposed to be that godzilla was coming onto that island to eat the cows and yeah and that like there was a cow in its mouth for that original shot but then Subaraya thought it looked bad and changed it <laughs> which to me is so funny because i'm just trying to picture how small a cow would be in that mouth and how you wouldn't even be able to fucking notice and it's like i would be too <laughs> distracted by the flop like one like basically it looks like it has bell's palsy on half its face like sacking yeah. Its yeah uh yeah but there's there's actually a couple shots of cows earlier in that island on that island that make me think that that was supposed to be like foreshadowing i don't know if you saw that well, they also mention when they go talking to the government about uh, how much their livestock was taken out. By oh, the... true. Good point. Um, Good point. There's a really cool feature on the on the Blu-ray of this where they show like um, the map paintings that they inserted throughout the movie, and there's quite a few 
in this whole island uh sequence where like not only they they show the footprints like the before and after the map painting but there's also plenty of scenes where like you like you see the ocean in the background you see the footprints in the background one of them and it's it's a really cool special feature if you have the blu-ray to kind of look through what the difference is between what was before and what was after like which part was map painting and which part was real footage or like they'll show like a before footage before they had the the map painting overlaid of the footprints oh so just like a shot of that spot okay yeah and there's other scenes where like you'll see kind of like the ocean takes up like uh half of the frame in the back and that that wasn't actually there and they'll show you the original shot and they'll show you the shot with that there's another shot where you see a footprint in the background while they're at like the village and then they show it before they put that in but it's a it's a really cool special feature hell yeah speaking of that shot where godzilla is sticking over the edge um sticking over the horizon in the follow-up scene where there's another meeting with paleontologists, which I've got to say one thing about Ishiro Honda is he loves meetings and he loves people getting information over the phone and uh, he loves repeating information. That's just one thing that there's a lot of in these movies. But I mean, your favorite Godzilla is Shin Godzilla, and that there's a lot of meetings in that one. So That is true, but uh, that. we'll get into why that's different there. Um <laughs> In this meeting, they're like, here is a photo of Godzilla from that scene. And it's just so funny because it's clearly a painting. It looks nothing like him there. And it's like, you have photos. <laughs> you have 24 photos a second of that. Why couldn't you print out one of those? <laughs> but yeah, this is the meeting where we've covered most of this. They say uh, it's probably a dinosaur from 2 million years ago. The origin story of nuclear blast saying that it removed Godzilla from its surroundings. But the the interesting thing is a theme that we talked about a lot in them and that comes up in other things where the officials don't want this made public because they're worried about people panicking. And I took it when I watched this as the public being like like a, a, a woman that I assumed was just a member of the public being like, no, you should you should tell people. But I read somewhere that she was supposed to actually be like the head of a left wing party. Um, I don't know. Oh, really? You, yeah. I thought she was supposed to be a representative for the public. That's what I thought too, but I, I don't remember where it was. It might have been the YouTube video I talked about, um, which seemed pretty well researched, or it might have been the book. I don't remember, but I remember being like, oh, wow, she was supposed to represent a group that like maybe they said the name and it just meant nothing to me. I don't know. Hmm. Um, but Yeah, if... I thought she was supposed to be specifically representative for the public. So either the there. scene is the public, yet again, like the scene with the Coast Guard, versus the government who's willing, un, who's unwilling to be transparent, or it's actually like a left wing versus a conservative government, which is also very interesting. Um, both In both yeah. cases, I like that they're depicting that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and this is especially notable um, because this, for multiple reasons, um, like we mentioned before, under occupation, there was a lot of censorship about what the Japanese could depict, ironically, since uh, the occupying force was a force who talks about freedom of speech, and they were not allowed to depict questioning democracy. Oh, yeah. Um, which this scene depicts. Uh, 
questioning a democratic government. Um, and also, I does it? Are you sure that violates that rule? Because I, it's not questioning like the the act of being democratic. It's not questioning whether democracy is valid. It's just questioning the government, which is a democratic government. I, I found it in my notes. The censorship rules forbade film from scenes that would sow doubt of democratic institutions. Okay. So the questioning of a government body's decisions would be in violation of it. Or it could at least arguably be like pushing it for pretty hard. Yeah. For sure. Also, uh, yeah, one of the whole things, which I mentioned earlier with the Lucky Dragon incident, was how much that strained diplomatic relations between Japan and America. And that's referenced in this because they don't specifically say America or anything, but that's supposed to be uh, implied. And I believe the the government official talks about how releasing this info to the world would, would strain their, their diplomatic relations. And that's, that's obviously a reference to totally. Yeah. There's quite a few things like that in this film. Thanks for bringing that up where they say something that it, without the context would seem like a throwaway line and is actually like very loaded, which we'll get to when they come across. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of which, there's a scene inside of a commuter train that's pretty quick. And I don't think there's much to say about it. It's just people discussing Godzilla coming and a character says like, oh, we'll have to take shelter and one character just says ah the shelters again that stinks and that and that hits me so hard it's like you know what i mean it just kind of shows how normalized it is yeah yeah that they're like it's not like the most horrible thing in the world it's just like oh no that again oh god damn it yeah totally like uh i don't it just kind of makes me feel that's such a hassle yeah totally and it's it's just like anything else where like once that becomes it's like oh we have to do another fucking school shooter drill again what a fucking hassle like it just becomes so normalized it's it's more horrific than if you were like freaking out about it yeah i just uh at my job um yesterday i had to i had to do a training video about an active shooter situation and i was afterwards i was like i i definitely took that training video before and they're like oh yep you have to do it once a year and i'm like okay yeah like yep it's just so normalized just like oh this is annoying that i have to spend 20 minutes to do this again (laughs) yeah dude i when i was at uh barnes and noble in 2019 this is when like a lot of white supremacists were shooting up late. Like it was like a record year for that. I feel like, and the, we had this like meeting that was just like a really quick meeting before we get back to work. And they handed us these cards that the, with FBI guidance for what to do during an attack. And one of the things was like, it was basically like, if you can't like get away, like use small objects as projectiles to disable the target. And so my like, <laughs> fucking manager getting paid like $15 an hour talking to us getting paid $11 an hour is like so you know like grab the heavier books like maybe a bible and um and it's just like are you, like okay any questions like you're telling us that we need to throw books at armed assailants like in just a normal ass tone and then we just go just go back to work like what the fuck 
Anyway, yeah, it reminds yeah. me of that kind of stuff, except on a way more fucking horrific scale. Like, like what we're yeah. talking about is nothing compared to the hundreds of thousands oh, yeah. that died from this shit. It's, it's. I feel like that's kind of one of the benefits of a movie like this is it just gives you glimpses into things that you can't even fucking explain how you feel about. You know, a couple other things about that train train scene. Uh, I believe one of them mentions. I believe one of them mentions atomic tuna. Which I took to be a reference once again to the Lucky Dragon incident, mm-hmm. where there were fears about a uh, radiated fish. Also, these characters we see again later, and they are killed by Godzilla, which is a, a device used by Honda for us to uh, kind of relate on a personal level to the uh, victims of Godzilla instead of them just being a. Uh, kind of random a, person or something yeah just a random person we have no totally. connection to at all and and that kind of like doubles on the 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 sadness of this scene of like these people are i'm gonna go ahead and say this is an anti-capitalist reading of this these people are <laughs> in suits and shit right they're like commuting probably to work they think it's a hassle that they have to go into the shelters even though they nine years before probably new people who were killed by the u.s in in one of these many incidents and bombings we're talking about their their perspective on this now is oh it's gonna fuck up my day i'm gonna have to go into a shelter or i'm gonna have to whatever they're like purposely shown on their way as part of a flow of this system that's being interrupted and then the reality is so much worse that they're actually fucking murdered by the thing that they thought was just like getting in the way of of what they wanted to do being productive or whatever it's fucking that's intense man yeah so the next scene is basically us finding out um that there's now an anti-godzilla fleet and that their plan is to drop depth charges on this monster uh that was created through bombing the ocean yeah so let's use weaker bombs to <laughs> to deal with him. <laughs> Which, just like we'll see in almost every fucking kaiju movie and in real life, all the cops and military know how to do is shoot at stuff. You know, what the fuck else are they going to do? Um, yeah. But that's very apparent here. And then the footage being used of the depth charges you can tell like it's kind of grainier and shit is actually world war ii footage of depth charges being used which is pretty intense i didn't know that that's that's uh that is intense as a friend of mine once said (laughs) keep an eye out for it next time and it becomes very apparent how much different these effects and stuff look actually pause i'm just gonna look to see if i can find a line about it because it's pretty interesting so yeah after an uh this is from Mushroom Clouds and Mushroom Men. Um, After an official announces that Godzilla is to be uh, depth-bombed, a sequence follows containing actual wartime stock footage of a depth-bomb training mission. The scratchy quality of the source print will be in sharp contrast to the crisp and newly filmed scenes of military preparedness to follow in future Toho Monster movies. So I guess it was a, like, not actual footage from battle, but depth charge training sequences but it was world war ii footage fucking fucking crazy right yeah that's gnarly as hell so next scene is pretty quick uh yamane our paleontologist is fucking pissed that the thing we were just talking about i kind of like how they call it out right away right like uh we're always like all the military knows how to do is shoot stuff and and yamane is like all the military knows how to do is shoot stuff (laughs) 
<laughs> and so he sits in the dark with his stegosaurus and tells his daughter to turn off the lights while he sits in the dark, which seems like a real, like, edgelord move in today's, like, I don't know, it it, it seems a little melodramatic, but I, I think it fits for this context, if that makes sense. No, it, it totally does. Um, Han, like I said before, Honda rewrote the script from the original story he was given. In the original story, Yamane was supposed to be like a mad scientist recluse. Oh, wow. Um, who was just like against the world. And Honda saw science as like a really great thing. He, he thought that the uh, rational thought that science brought to the world was uh, superior to the, to the more nationalist beliefs of a lot of the, the a lot of people so he he really valued scientists so he wanted to make yamane a more sympathetic character and i think he 100 percent succeeded i think yeah most people who watch this they'll agree with yamane that and they'll empathize with godzilla that this is this is like an incredible marvel of incredible wonder who its fault is that it was radiate awoken and mutated by humanity. It's not an evil thing in and of itself. It's a byproduct of the evil of humanity. Totally. And in the interview with um, the actor who played Ogata, he talks about when he, when a lot of them, when they watched the premiere of it, a lot of them cried when Godzilla dies at the end because they loved Godzilla because you really feel for Godzilla as a creature. So it's the audience, at least for me, and I think a lot of people, you really identify with Yamane's perspective of just this this kind of really horrifying thought that all these other people want to do is all they can think about is how do we kill this? How do we kill this? How do yeah. we kill this? Yeah, I, I fully agree. And, like, not only, like, as an audience, we can understand that, like, Godzilla didn't ask to be mutated. Godzilla, I mean, Ishiro Honda has a, an awesome quote about kaiju that I I can't, I don't have in front of me and I'm going to butcher, but it is something about how their tragedy is that they were born too big, too powerful. And, yeah, that it's not, like, Godzilla is a symptom of the problem, and we're not trying to solve the problem. We're trying to solve the symptom, and, and that's an issue. But I also think, sorry, and Godzilla is, like, a conscious creature, and so it's 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 so fucking complicated, and, and, and it's really easy to empathize with him. But from Yamani's perspective, I feel like it's even more intense, because it's like, imagine you're spending your whole life studying and thinking about these specific things in this case dinosaurs and then you finally get to see one and you give information on it and then the first thing that happens to the people you, with the the people you give that information to are trying to kill it and you're like did i help destroy the thing that i cared so much about like that's fucking intense um yeah. so i i think he's also not only just having the existential questions that we all have watching it, I think he's having a, uh, a, a, he's feeling maybe a little guilty for being a part of it at all. So um, after that scene, 
uh, it gets to the casino ship scene, which we already kind of talked about. Um, but basically, there's a ship full of people, and we see Godzilla pop out of the water, which is kind of a sign that the depth charges didn't kill him. They brought him back to the surface, right? Um, I don't think there was much more to that scene, do you? No, but just don't piss off our uh, angry, cranky boy anymore, because you're going to bring out a true anarchist, and you don't want to do that. God damn it. Um <laughs> I gotta say, though, the him getting in the water and, like, the tail moving as he swam down into the water looks really good. Yeah, I wrote that, that, uh, I wrote, awesome shot of G swimming, tail flopping through water. Yeah, and, like, I, 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 that was one of my favorite shots in the movie. I think that just looked really, really incredible. It, it looks really good, and especially compared to, like, in future movies that had less of a budget, the, the, like puppet just falling into the water sideways with no grace like this looked really good the fact that we can hear its footsteps at the time aside (laughs) it looks really good maybe that was a very very uh shallow ocean (laughs) true so yeah i i i wrote that could be taken as a mistake or as a symbol of the coming destruction because this is Mm. supposed to be a scene where we're seeing oh shit destruction's coming he's back uh but you know they it, he's just swimming so i feel like maybe those footsteps are just added as like a almost like as a um lay motif you know to remind yeah. us so the next scene the capitalists like i mean yamane is having a fucking tough time right like the the, the capitalists are like godzilla is gonna fuck up our shipping routes how do we kill him and at that point if i'm yamane i just fucking lose my shit you know, <laughs> your shipping routes, dude, like you're nine years out from everybody fucking, I don't, you get it. Yeah. You all get it. <laughs> you gotta keep the money going, buddy. You gotta you keep gotta that keep shit the... rolling, dude. Gotta yeah. keep those stonks up. Okay. So you mentioned, which I didn't know that Yamane was originally like a mad scientist character. Do you know if Sarazawa mm-hmm. was in the original script? I I'm pretty sure he was. Maybe it was a smaller role. Cause some of Sarazawa's like lab set gives me the mad scientist vibe. You know, it's a very like Frankenstein's lab kind of feel. He's got the coat yeah. all the time. He's got the one eye patch. He's mysterious. You know what I mean? When I actually when I read that Yamane was originally supposed to be a mad scientist, I like had to reread it a couple times. He's like, isn't are you sure that's not supposed to be Sarazawa? Mm. Because Sarazawa comes out across as a mad scientist. But uh, no, Yamane was originally supposed to be. I mean, I know the love triangle was originally written in there by Honda. Okay. So I don't know if that means Sarazawa's a character was originally brought forth by Honda or For what. For sure. I also know Sarazawa. So one of his characteristics is he has an eye patch, which he got during the war. Yeah. Um. And he originally had way more scarring on his face, right? Yeah. Yeah, Honda originally wanted to do more dis- uh, facial disfiguration, but he was afraid that it would make the audience less sympathetic to him. Totally. So he, all he did was the eye patch. I mean, he did have scars on his face. They were just a lot lighter. Yeah. And I do like that our intro to Sarazawa is in the, in the, in the shot where uh, uh, Yamane... And Amiko are going 
to Odo Island, everybody on the shore is cheering, but he's standing there in, uh, uh, Serizawa standing there in sunglasses, dark clothing, not cheering, just looking sullen. Like, it's very clear that even though we don't know his background, like, I think the idea is that the horrors of war, whatever you want to call it, PTSD or, or, or just his experiences or the knowledge he has now that we know this of, of the oxygen destroyer separate him from humanity. And I think that's a way of making him seem separate and different and, and have a foreboding energy without making him like just so scarred up that we don't like that we're like grossed out or uh, don't identify with him if that makes sense i think he was just supposed to be emo same thing yeah Yeah, early prototype uh the 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 Um, smiths are playing and hey don't mock the smiths i love the smiths Um, they're great okay but mock morrissey please please mock morrissey morrissey can (laughs) fucking die in the ocean with godzilla yeah um well, I wanted to point out, I mean, I, it makes me wonder if Sarazawa was supposed to be a uh, stand-in for Honda himself, because Sarazawa obviously, obviously has this kind of pacifistic streak where he's afraid that his discovery is going to be used as a weapon, and he's determined for that not to happen to the extent where he kills himself, so that doesn't happen. So he's obviously Spoilers. pretty pacifistic. And then he has this he has facial disfiguration from being in the war. Like I said earlier, Honda was a POW. He didn't get facial disfiguration, but he was obviously he was he experienced the horrors of war. Yeah. So it really makes me wonder if that was a character that Honda really related to. And I mean, I also think he related to Yamane's stance on yeah. not wanting to kill Godzilla. But yeah, that's a good point. So the scene with Serizawa when we're, I mean, we see Serizawa before we're introduced to him really here when Amiko is going with the journalist to try to give the journalist an in because she knows him. So, I mean, there's this weird love triangle that's like kind of barely explained where she's betrothed to Serizawa, but she's now in love with Ogata and now she's kind of stuck in this in, in the middle, but wants to help this journalist and a detail I didn't really notice um, until I read more about it with the journalist is that one of the first things that happened is the journalist asked Sarazawa um, says something about like, Oh, I heard that you had uh, uh, German associates and Sarazawa is like, no, I don't. And then the, the journalist gives kind of like a, like a, like a, a sly face and it almost feels like it was like a gotcha question, like a mm-hmm. trying to throw him off his game by suggesting that he was still part of the Axis powers and like the, the their dark past, you know? I believe it was in uh, Brian Solman's FAQ. He actually brings that up because in uh, the West Germany version, they actually did not censor that part, which they would have if they thought it actually was supposed to be a reference to Nazis. Interesting. Yeah, the the thing I read was specifically talking about how that would have been read by Japanese audiences in a very specific way because talking about the associations with Germany was very, very sketchy at the time. Yeah, that makes sense. And I I honestly probably believe that more. Um, For sure, yeah. And I mean, 
it's easy to think that executives might have just been stupid or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> or like not have thought about how it would have sounded to the yeah. Japanese. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just interesting that such, I think I mentioned earlier, but such a throwaway line actually yeah. has so much weight to it. What did you think about the, uh, the fish tank scene the first time around before we flash back to it? Uh, I like that scene a lot. Um, do you not agree? I, I don't dislike it, but I will say on my first watch through, it felt to me like. I don't know how to put this. It felt to me like the the cheesiest or least artistically consistent scene of the movie, just the way that it was like, she's looking at a fish tank. The worst thing that can happen is that the fish die. It's a bunch of fish already stuck in a fish tank. And her her response is so dramatic that the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, this is a cheesy movie. Like that to me was the first big cheese ball mm. moment. Um, when I watch it now thinking about the implications of how we're supposed to feel about such a weapon, it works for me, but it does feel like when I watch it with other people, people kind of laugh at that part. Um, okay. That makes sense. No, that does make sense. Um, and I have a different tolerance for cheese and a different appreciation for cheese than most other people. Cause I, I like a lot of cheesy stuff. So that might skew my, my reading of it. And yeah, I, I, uh, I haven't watched it with anybody else, so I can't really gauge what other people's reactions to it are. Yeah, I mean, I there's one uh, part of it, I believe. So we don't see what she's seen, because Sirizawa keeps this as a secret with Emiko, and Honda seems to want us to be a part of the uh, people that it's kept a secret from. Oh, interesting. Um, so, we, so we only see Emiko's reaction. Which is kind of interesting narrative advice. So all we had to gauge what's going on is her reaction. And I really like... It It focuses on her face. And I believe there's a jump cut where all of a sudden you see a, distinct, uh, a distinctive cut. And she's maybe like slightly off kilter from where she was right before. Yeah. And it kind of gives it a real surreal and horrific effect i really love the effect of that that kind of editing which i think a lot of people would see that and they would think it was just kind of uh cheesy kind of um of, of a mistake but for me it's a, a very effective it kind of adds to the the horror and the the, the mystery and the surreal aspect of what is this extreme thing that she's seen in this fish tank that's horrifying her so much totally and i i think that the more time one thing about this movie in general is that the the more i watch it the better it gets because the first time you watch it there's so many things that don't fit with our timeline of of like with our movie context right now like a guy in a suit smashing stuff that like mm takes me a second to process but when i look at it the more times i watch it the more i i i see like small things like that you know like the cinematography in this movie is actually really fucking good and there's so much symbolism and just like that there's so much depth to it like the scream might be so outlandish it makes people laugh on a first watch but like she's not just 
screaming because she's seeing a bunch of fish suddenly die. She's screaming because she's in the context of the trauma of dealing with not only nuclear weapons, but also now this beast. And then the person she's betrothed to, this person that she admires, who's like a genius scientist, is showing the thing he's been working on in secret away from her for so long. And she sees that the thing he's been working on is like death, immediate death. And all of that combines into this moment that like when you know all that feels very genuine, even though the first time when you don't know all that or you don't have time or the ability to process all that at once seems just like somebody screaming really loud at a fish tank, you know? Yeah. And um, while she's there to to tell Serizawa that she's in love with Ogata and not him and she wants to break it off. Yeah. um, She still says in the scene prior to this that she's always seen him as a brother. So it's not that she doesn't love him. She obviously very much loves him, just not in a romantic way. So it's, it's uh, still someone that she has a huge connection to who is creating this horrific weapon. Yeah. And I mean, the connections and the, the like complicated nuanced, but genuine connections between the three main characters, not counting Yamana or Yamane, are one of, I think, the strongest things about this film and something that I think is missing from a lot of movies nowadays. Like, I, I'll i get more into that later, but I, I really appreciate all the human connections between those three people in this movie, and I think this is a part of that, you know? Yeah, and once again, to point out that the love triangle is not in the original script. This is something yeah. that Honda and Murata wrote into it. Um, I believe specifically Honda uh, brought up the love triangle, and it's really a, a very a great part of the movie that's, I think, often overlooked. Absolutely. So after the scene in Sarazawa's lab, we have the iconic scene right where godzilla emerges to smash tokyo fucking anarchist baby stop saying that especially with (laughs) what we're about to talk about it's not what it is anyway exactly like footage of antifa to me okay so we're gonna get into like the actual effects and how this scene looks in a minute because this scene is fucking amazing and it's probably in my mind the reason that godzilla or that that yeah godzilla spawned the kaiju genre but first we got to talk about what this scene is 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 referencing so just like the scene with the uh fishing boats in the the opening referencing the lucky dragon number five incident a lot of Godzilla smashing Tokyo is supposed to be reminiscent of the bombing raid of Tokyo. So, I mean, there's been a lot of bombings of Tokyo, but there was a specific one from March 9th to 10th in uh, 1945 that was, I don't even know how to put it into words. It was a series of firebombing raids called Operation Meeting House by the United States. It was the, like, including nuclear blasts. This is the single most destructive bombing raid in history. 16 square miles of Tokyo were bombed by the United States. An estimated 100,000 civilians were killed and over 1 million people were made homeless. 
since much of Tokyo was uh, made of wood, most of the structures, it was completely on fire. Um, and most the bombs, I believe, were incendiary bombs. So this is why we notice in this sequence, compared to a lot of future Godzilla films and kaiju films in general, there's fire fucking everywhere. And that's supposed to uh, evoke, like, memories of this. So just to keep that in mind that uh, a lot of modern audiences at the time would have recognized the, an attack on Tokyo, lighting, lighting Tokyo on fire, killing so many people. And like, unlike a lot of kaiju films, this shows people being killed. There's like 60 deaths on screen or something. And they, they would have, would have understood that this was a reference to what had happened to Tokyo only nine years before. Um, one weird, interesting Sorry, before I go on, did you have anything to say about that? Yeah, a one argument for... Uh, so, yeah, three things. One, cool facts. This is a lot of fun. It really makes it feel good. Two, one of the arguments about why uh, the atomic bombs were not justified was that they didn't really calculate into the scheme of things because we were destroying so much on such a regular basis already that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, wasn't uh, as huge as we make it out to be because we were just regularly fucking completely destroying cities anyways without nuclear power. So you talking about the, the, the factual details of this kind of brings that up to my mind that just how fucking horrific war is i mean to be at yeah just to put it bluntly it's just like, we're talking about entire cities just fucking going up in flames it's yeah i can't even i can't even begin to imagine anything like that yeah and i know that um if you look at like the people who are making the decision i know we're talking about bombing rate of tokyo but the this occurred after um, making the decisions to drop the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I, I believe it was three more cities that were, were planned to drop bombs on maybe two more. Um, but then Japan surrendered the reasons that they give are not like this will create a strategic advantage or this is the only way to win the war or this will save X many lives. None of that is the reasons they drop them. The reasons, and I I haven't looked this up in fucking forever, but a long, long time ago, I went to Japan and I went to the Hiroshima Museum and they have on the wall a, a lot of uh, of these, these like, back and forths happening in, like, uh, I forget where, but, like, the, the, the United States was having and making these decisions. And basically it came down to, we've already spent the money we got to do it. Like we want to see what these bombs do. We've spent the money. We got to do it. Um, it's just fucking devastating beyond belief. And so fucking fucked up. And it's like Japan was fucked up. They were working with Hitler. United States was fucked up. Everybody sucks. Fuck them. Fuck them all. I mean, Japan wasn't just working with Hitler. They were an imperial nation on their own. Oh yeah. They'd been um, colonizing yeah. fucking, China and Korea forever. Yeah. 
and they saw themselves as invincible. Like nobody had successfully grabbed any land on the uh, Japanese archipelago for like three thousand years or something. Yeah, David Collette mentions in his commentary. He talks about Serizawa as uh, a stand-in for uh, Oppenheimer. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. Yeah, how Oppenheimer was interested in creating the atom bomb because he was told the Nazis were studying the same thing, and so he need they need to beat the Nazis. And before he even finished work on the atom bomb. The Nazis were done, and then they still ended up using the weapon on Japan, and then they immediately told him to start work on the H-bomb, and the whole reason why he got into this in the first place was to beat the Nazis to the atom bomb, and now all of a sudden there is no more enemy, and they're telling him, we need to go for the H-bomb, we need to go for the H-bomb, and he... Uh basically said fuck this i can't do this uh, this is yeah this is too horrible um and then he was his boss basically thought he was a communist sympathizer and he was blacklisted from the scientific community but um yeah david Collette mentions that the sarazawa might be influenced uh, by oppenheimer because I mean, he's so absolutely he, I mean, he has yeah. to be. Obviously, the oxygen destroyer is a stand-in for the atomic and H-bomb. But, like, also just the idea that the line between communist and non-communist is you're a communist if you are not become death destroyer of worlds. Yeah. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Yeah. Uh. Whew! Okay. Um. Everybody shake. Shake your body. <laughs> Okay, um, so yeah, that's a fucking lot, and uh, we went off on it, but yeah, it's intense. Like, watching this now in 2021, watching Godzilla smash these fucking cities, to me, looks really fucking cool. And I wanted to be able to talk about how cool it looks, but I thought we should get out all the fucking gnarly stuff of what it's referencing out of the way first. Because it's not just referencing the, like, we, we talked about... We went off topic and talked about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but like we'll get to it. It is referencing those things too. It's referencing all of it. But one one kind of less heavy but interesting side note is that um I don't know if you know this, Charlie, but like you know how there were uh, there's two lost Japanese King Kong films, although one of them is like some people aren't sure if it existed. So first, right after uh, King Kong came out. In 1933, there was a movie made in Japan called Wasei Kingu Kongo, which I believe is like Japanese King Kong, but it was actually a comedy kind of making fun of King Kong about a man who dresses in a gorilla suit to like, I forget, to make money in some way. Um, And then there was also a movie called King Kong Appears in Edo in 1938, although some people question whether that movie exists, but there seems to be a lot of evidence that it did. Apparently, the reason both of those films are lost is the bombing of Tokyo. Those films were bombed and don't exist anymore because of that, which I just thought was like a really weird connection between all of these fucking kaiju things, you know? Yeah, I mean, that is crazy. But uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, film in general, like most film from that era was has not been because uh, film deteriorates and uh, there hasn't been a conscious uh, effort to make sure that film doesn't deter- deteriorate until after that era, basically. So there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of film from like the silent era and the early sound era that has just been destroyed and lost forever. Yeah, I I, I didn't know about that fact, so. But I knew mo- a ton of film from that era uh, just has been lost to, totally. to uh, natural deterioration. So I, that's what I assumed it had been. And maybe it has, but uh, it makes a better story. That oh, totally. And I mean, it makes <laughs> it makes hundred percent sense too. So totally. Okay, let's get in. Let's 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 get out of the political stuff and just talk about this attack in the movie. To me, this is the fucking scene. These effects are so awesome. What do you think? Oh yeah, I, totally. It's it looks like fucking hell on earth. Yeah, which it's supposed to look like. So good job. Yeah, I mean, even compared to movies ten or twenty years later, these effects look awesome. Like they did such a good job. Um, you when you were describing Subaraya in your synopsis in the beginning, you gave him like a weird long middle name. But uh, I just thought it was funny because, do you know what I'm talking about? You said something like... I think I said Father Tukatsu. There you go. Did I say, did I say something else? No, 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 that sounds right. Uh, I read that his that he was known as A.G. Smoke Subaraya. Oh, yeah, that was another one of his nicknames. Is totally. Smoke. Yeah. And I, because I, he uses smoke so well, he uses these visuals so well. Um, the melting power lines look so fucking good. I don't even know how they yeah. did it. It looks so awesome. You know what I'm talking about? Like um, the, the, it they were. Uh, I'm not going to bother looking through my notes. I believe they were made of wax, and then they put in um, super super hot lights on them to make them melt. Well, they look fucking awesome, and I know specifically uh, Honda was like blown away by that effect. He never pictured anything he wrote to look that good on screen, and was mm-hmm. so excited. Um, yeah, this scene is just like, to me, it holds up. It looks so fucking good, but it's also far more gruesome than most of what we see. Like, there, his atomic breath is used directly on humans, and I don't think we've seen that since that I can think of. Yeah. I believe Honda was very interested in um, displaying um, a visual representation of uh, radiation. He really wanted to uh, uh, have Godzilla breathe radiation, uh, radiated breath. And yeah, it's a great effect. It's, it's just a fucking horrific scene. I mean, just... This is just what anarchy is. It's just horrific. Stop it. Okay, sorry. You're actually getting mad, aren't you? I mean, it's just like the sixth time, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not actually mad. (laughs) I mean, it's just the miniatures are so good. It's so clearly not cardboard. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we really... I think we mentioned it now that... I say that we haven't talked about it, but yeah, the miniatures, they brought in like a whole crew to build these miniatures and they weren't, they, they wanted to build them so that they would be, they would act realistically to whatever 
pressure they would put on it. So they would actually construct like interiors that were to scale to what actual buildings would be. That's um, so, so this wild. wasn't just yeah, it's not just them making just a bunch of cardboard buildings like Ebert might think. They really put in a ton, a ton of fucking work into these miniatures. And once again, this is not something that was common at this point. No. Um, Super I had done miniatures before in previous films, but not to this extent, I don't think. And, and no one had ever done Pseudomation that I know of, right? No, no, no. This was a creation Pseudomation, I believe. Yeah. So this was all them just making this on the fly with, um, you know, by Japanese standards, it was a large budget, but not to Hollywood standards, it wasn't a large budget. And they had had a limited time, and they were just fucking going with it, making this shit up on the fly, and doing it successfully to where it looks great. And yeah, if you're an asshole in 2021, you could pick apart how the CGI scene I saw in Godzilla vs. Kong was better than that. Um, But, uh, fuck you. Um, This is, uh... To me, it's a lot more visually appealing and a lot more um, hits better notes to me, anyways. Yeah, I mean it's it's it looks fucking good. It's fucking horrific. There are obviously like parts where like something looks out of place or it looks goofy, but in general, it looks so fucking good. And it, I mean, I keep wanting to use the word horrific, but like, fuck, man, like they like I feel like most of the Godzilla movies after this you don't think about the humans. But in this one, like, you have yeah. that iconic scene you mentioned earlier of the the woman clutching her children, saying, we'll be with dad soon. Or, like, people driving and their cars, like, turning sideways and it, and it blowing up or atomic breath going directly on people. And, like, even, even not just counting the people, there's just fucking, like, uh, buildings fucking crashing that look like fucking heavy and full of stuff like they do such a good job of trying to make it look realistic and that scene there's a there's a famous scene that some people think is kind of like funny but like it's uh you know i'm talking about where all the the reporters are up on the like a radio tower or something and godzilla's Mm -hmm. coming and uh the they're just like reporting what's happening until they get killed and I know that's like, I don't know, people laugh about that. It's obviously like easy to be like, like, Charlie, do you think that we would uh, keep just doing what we love till the last moment? You know, do you think we would like not drop the mics, you know, until Godzilla ate us or whatever? But like, there's nothing nope. they could do. They knew they were going to die. And I think that part of that is kind of maybe referencing the uh, their radio man on the Lucky Dragon um, that fucking died. Like you're Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Just doing your fucking job, you know? Yeah. Whew. Um, we should also mention that there's a scene in this where Godzilla's walking through water and there are a bunch of jets and they're flying and they're shooting at him, but none of the missiles hit him. The reason that none of the missiles hit him is that this was actually one of the few scenes where uh Tezuka was in the suit and they had put a bunch of I don't know if they were squibs or what, but things that were supposed to explode on Godzilla's suit. But the way that they made them explode was through wires and the wires have electricity shoot through them. And so the wires are going through the water and nobody thought about the fact 
that those wires would then electrocute the water, which would electrocute Tezuka. So when they shot the scene, it electrocuted Tezuka and his heart stopped. Like he actually died momentarily until paramedics restarted his heart, which I believe is one of two near deaths in this movie. I can't remember the other one, but I think it's in my notes later, which Mm. is just fucking intense like people are like oh he's just walking around in a suit with cardboard it's like no these people were like dedicating like putting everything they had into making this look awesome and it looked fucking awesome yeah i mean we haven't even talked about uh how difficult like just being godzilla was Um, yeah go for it (laughs) i mean it's just uh the original suit they made was over 200 pounds um which was uh when um nakajima is that his name yeah nakajima when he first got into it and he like couldn't move it at all he started uh panicking which yeah i i that sounds fucking sounds horrifying so claustrophobic and... <laughs> yeah oh man and especially uh-huh. if you're like oh this is gonna be my job for the next so, so many weeks <laughs> yeah. and you get in and you're like i can't fucking move are you kidding me yeah even watching, um, I was watching footage from uh, GMK of um, Baragon like getting in and out of her suit, and I was just like, "Oh, that looks uh, like something I could never do." <laughs> like it was just like yeah, way more than you. You just kind of expect, like when you think about people putting on uh, these suits, you just kind of like think, "Oh, it's just like someone putting on a Halloween costume," and it's like it's a lot more intense than that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so Nakajima, every time he took off the suit, they would, uh, wring out, like, a, a full cup's worth of sweat from the, from the suit. That's just how hot and intense this, this work was. I mean, it was... Wow, what a wuss. He never podcasted clearly. I'm wringing out a fucking cup of air. <laughs> I'm actually kind of chilly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this was, uh, intense work for them is is uh not as easy as one would understandably think when they just hear oh suitmation you're just putting on a a fucking costume and just uh just stomping around miniatures yeah like i've had a lot of different jobs in my day i've never died and then had my heart (laughs) brought back to life so i think it's really easy to be like oh you're just walking around in a fucking rubber suit smashing shit that sounds like fun it's like no you fucking literally died and came back <laughs> like yeah but i mean we'll see where this podcast goes <laughs> it's not a job because we're losing money but <laughs> we'll see what happens <laughs> so that scene is fucking awesome and i think that honda wanted and and Subaraya, who actually directed these scenes wanted obviously us to feel the horror but also to feel just like for lack of a better overused word, the awesomeness of a giant monster like Godzilla just smashing everything and showing how inconsequential these buildings are to to Godzilla. And that's a thing that will stay through the Godzilla franchise, right? Is trying to show off the awesomeness of those acts. But one thing I think that makes this movie unique compared to a lot of them is the aftermath. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think it dwells on the aftermath of these 
of this attack in a way that other Godzilla films don't. Partially, I think, because, as you said earlier, Honda saw the aftermath of Hiroshima and walked through the wreckage. And I believe he was... Sorry, I believe he is also a survivor of uh, the firebombing of Tokyo. Damn. Maybe yeah. maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure, but I mean, yeah, like they they show shots of the city just being leveled, much like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we not only see that, but we we see like rooms full of people, some of whom are dead, some of whom are dying with with uh, uh, medical workers carrying away people with blood running down their face on stretchers while children are crying. Like, it is very intense compared to most kaiju movies and is very much, I think, supposed to be a uh, a reminder of, of those attacks during the war, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is... Other kaiju movies are... Not really meant to evoke the horrors of war. This is very explicitly meant to evoke the absolute extremes of the horrors of war. Sounds like somebody hasn't seen Rago. (laughs) That was our first episode. You know I've seen it. Yeah, but the footage, the 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 files are lost. No one knows that but me. You have anything else about that before we move on to less intense stuff? Slightly less, 1% less intense stuff? Nope. Cool. So, that super intense scene, which is pretty fucking long. He destroys that shit for a while. And, Mm -hmm. might I say, we haven't mentioned the music a lot, but that music is fucking epic during that scene. Yeah, I mean, the music throughout the entire movie is fucking... I love the soundtrack to this movie. Soundtrack is so amazing. Let's just say it right now. Like, do I feel like he was given like four days to write it or some shit. Like he also wasn't shown footage of uh, the Godzilla stuff. So he like just came up with it without, he was told like Godzilla is going to be like the biggest monster, biggest thing ever. And, but he was not actually shown footage. They're like, so, he's the biggest thing ever. And immediately he's like, Dinner. like <laughs> if Akube is fucking amazing like this is such yeah. an amazing soundtrack for the time and it's crazy that so much of the movie something like 60 percent of the movie doesn't have music but when it does it's fucking great you know yeah i mean i could do I a, mean, with a little less of the but like it i works. disagree okay you need more of it <laughs> yes although uh I did feel that I think in uh Verse Destroyer uh they use that a ton and I think when I was watching that I was like this music's getting kind of overplayed. Sometimes when I watch this one I feel like that one song is overplayed. It's like every time they get on a boat, every time but in general like there's a reason that Godzilla fans are upset uh what are we at like 70 years later when his soundtrack isn't in it enough you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like it's so fucking good yeah so we go from that beautiful scene and horrific scene to (laughs) sarazawa talking about the oxygen destroyer like you said oppenheimer shit but a better oppenheimer i would say He's talking about bombs versus bombs, missiles versus missiles, or as you said, A-bombs versus A-bombs, H-bombs versus H-bombs. And basically, we get, like, 
Sarazawa is just such a fucking legit dude that he's like, even if I burn my notes, I could have enough information to do bad things with this, even though right now my intentions are good. Like, he's so fucking responsible. And just the speech he gives about, like, not even wanting to use these bombs without his notes because he could technically, with his knowledge, be persuaded to do something wrong with them. Fucking less than 10 years after those bombs were dropped is so intense. Yeah, Sarazawa, what Honda did here is very, very interesting and unique. Collat points out in his commentary that Ogata is featured as the um, hero. And there's there's a funny anecdote where um, when Ogata, when he first came on the set, yeah. he was like, I'm the star of the movie. And everyone laughed and was like, no, Godzilla's the star yeah. of the movie. Fucking he was idiot. a young actor. It was only like <laughs> his third movie, I think. Yeah, and also another side note, him and Sarazawa had their roles swapped at the very last minute. Terminator. But uh, but yeah, Collat uh, points out in his commentary that Ogata is positioned as the hero of the movie, but there's really nothing heroic about him. He really never does anything heroic. He helps push the narrative forward, and he has good intentions, but... Sarazawa is really the hero of the movie, and he's not really um, positioned as such. And it's even to the extent where the love interest of the movie decides she doesn't love him and she loves Ogata instead. But the person who does all the heroism is Sarazawa. And that's just such a unique and interesting way to portray this. Uh, love triangle that you would really never expect that in a movie you would think that the person who's willing to who does the brilliant discovery who is willing to sacrifice their own life for the good of humanity the one who's having this huge internal moral struggle about what their knowledge could mean towards the human race and how how the horrors that that could lead to and that's not who you go in thinking of as the hero but he really is the actual hero yeah i i i guess i i I don't know what having what hero heroic characteristics explicitly means because i i would push back a little on the idea that ogata doesn't but only because i think that One thing I truly love about this movie is that Ogata, Emiko, and Serizawa are in really difficult positions, both politically and with the the plot, but and with their like love triangle. But all of them are like such good fucking people. And I love how it goes. Like, I love that, like. Ogata is like clearly the hot shot action star. Like you're supposed to take him as the main role. And uh, Sarazawa is like the brooding nerd who like no one understands. And he's all by himself. And Amiko is like, uh, has, has kind of like turned her back on the nerd to, to commit herself to Ogata. The, the like, clear front runner of what you would think would be the hero but 
they all just deal with it so like they're clearly pained and awkward about it but they deal with it so well like Amiko is forced into the situation by circumstances where she has to lie to both of them and then like Sarazawa should be so fucking jealous but he just wants to do what's right and Ogata could be so like so much like showing off and and like like that he won but he really just wants what's best and is very supportive of Sarazawa. it's just like I don't know it feel it like honestly makes me emotional when I watch it it's so it's like a very realistic and difficult situation and they all handle it as well as they could and yeah Sarazawa is clearly the hero but all of them do things that I would think of as heroic, like fuck heroes, no heroes, no gods, no ma- monsters, no masters, no heroes. But like, you know what I mean? Like they, it's all yeah. admirable and it, and it, it's, it's so rare and it just fills me with emotion. I don't mean to cast shade on Ogata. What's Ogata doesn't really do anything specifically heroic. That's not to say that Imiko shouldn't love him or anything like that. Obviously, love is a complicated thing, and it has nothing to do with anything like heroics. I'm just saying, the conventional way you you position a story is the person who's sacrificing themselves, who comes up with all this, they're supposed to be the hero. But that's not how Honda decides to portray this. And Ogata is totally a 100% great character, and he's totally... you the audience is meant to like him and they should like him. He's a good person and he, he wants what's best for, for everything. It's an incredible, it's, it's really like when you read that, like you just read this kind of like off, offhanded remark that, Oh, Hannah brought in the love triangle. Yeah. It's like that love triangle is just, it's so well written. All three characters it's it's is beautifully written it's 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 uh yeah it's writing really above what you really see in a lot of movies it's um because each one of three characters they have their own motivations and you really sympathize with each one of those motivations and totally um that's it really it's that's really another level of uh of writing in my opinion well said yeah, and I feel like it's something that we don't see in a lot of movies where, like, the main people having conflict are all doing a really good job, you know? Yeah. I feel like it's such an easy thing to be like, oh, this person didn't understand this person, this person's being petty about this, and that's where the conflict comes from. It's like, no, the conflict comes from, like, real human tragedy and the difficulty of human relations in this system and in this culture but all three characters are so admirable like yeah Mm -hmm. like you said it's like it's just so well written and it doesn't fit into a formula which is so almost ironic considering that like how formulaic this genre becomes but the first one is like (laughs) absolutely like it makes me emotional every time it's like like maybe not the first time i watched it but the more i watch it i'm like it's so fucking beautiful how much each of these characters is like humble and willing to sacrifice if they have to and and like cares about their honor but also wants to do the right thing it's just 
great. Yeah. All right, so we went kind of deep into the characters there, which I think is awesome. Um, but the last thing that happened in the scene, we we started off talking about Sarazawa doesn't trust himself with the knowledge, and he and he and he has this like existential question of do I use the oxygen destroyer to kill Godzilla or do I not? And then it it cuts into this choir, um, this this girls' choir singing. I don't have the lyrics in front of me, but they're they're basically it's basically they're singing about the desire for peace, and it's this beautiful song. And it sounds nothing like that. <laughs> and it then cuts back to Zarazawa. I'm not sure if 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 he could hear it, or if it was just kind of for us. Kind of just like the footsteps in the water. I don't. I don't know. Do you have a thought on that? Whether that was supposed to be a tangible thing that influenced him, or whether it's supposed to be more symbolic? Um, no, it was supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be a tangible thing. I think he was watching on TV. Oh, that's um, right. You're right. Yeah, which is another thing. And uh, I mentioned earlier the um, how they show like the matte paintings um, and that same. Uh, on the special effects in the Criterion uh, features, then that same feature they also showed like the the TV and how is a blank screen, and then cutting that in between uh, where they put in the they showed footage on the TV when they were looking at it. Gotcha. So the Oppenheimer of his era is swayed by the sounds of children singing. <laughs> and uh he decides it's 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 an interesting contrast right like this is a song about peace and he decides he has to use his incredibly destructive weapon Mm. but in that moment we don't know yet but he's decided he needs to die in order for that to happen right i think that's why it works yeah which yeah because he he mentions how um even if he destroys all of his notes the fact that he has the info in his head about the uh, the oxygen destroyer, governments could still entice him and uh, persuade him to give them that info. So he decides, without the audience doesn't know this, the Amico and Ogata don't know this, but he has decided that he will kill himself along with uh, Godzilla. Yeah, I don't. I I think that maybe uh, in. Maybe if I'm going off on a tangent, I'm sorry. But I think in general, maybe leftist movements have a tendency to idolize sacrifice more than we should. I think that the importance of... I'm not going to go off on it. Never mind. It's an incredible... Intrigued. <laughs> I think that like we idolize this idea of self-sacrifice for the greater good, right? But what does that ideal lead to? Let's say you and me and everyone else in a community decide to sacrifice our own needs for the community. No one in the community had their needs met. Everyone is sacrificing for what? Like, a community is just the people in the community. Every individual person's ability to have their needs, wants, and desires met should be the ideal of a community, because otherwise the the it's 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 empty because the whole point of protecting community and supporting community is for the community which is a bunch of individuals so we have this kind of like contradictory paradoxical idea that we push in a lot of leftism of uh 
uh, of sacrificing ourselves for the greater good. But if we all meet that ideal, there was no greater good because no one had their needs met and no one felt better because everyone sacrificed. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Um, which is one of the reasons that I, uh, I tend towards anarchism because I think a lot of communism is actually erasing community and collectivism and, and, uh, because you're actually erasing the whole point of it by saying that there's some ideal better than what the individual needs, but all of our individual needs should be the ideal. I digress. In general, I think that sacrifice is put up on a pedestal in a way that can be detrimental, but I think that in this instance, with these factors, with these power structures and pressures, what Sarazawa does is incredibly admirable and actually and and makes me like like hits my feels super super hard and I think that like just like the idea of how we shouldn't tell people who don't need to know about political actions that we were a part of or direct actions we were a part of because eventually like like that's actually harmful to them they could be interrogated and then they have like it, it, it's harmful then to them to have the knowledge that the state wants it's harmful to all of humanity for him to have the knowledge of the oxygen destroyer in his head and so he sacrifices himself for the greater good and it's uh, a, a beautiful thing he does yeah i mean like i said before that's uh the the most heroicism of the movie yes. is uh Serizawa's sacrifice, um, his willingness to kill himself for the good of everything. And not only that, I mean, you really have to remember that Imperial Japan was very much honor and dedication to the emperor and the nation. So to the idea of someone, obviously this was post-war, but they're still under the emperor. But to withhold this this uh, info of a super weapon from the powers that be, that even this is someone who is brought up on the honor to your country, honor to your country, yeah. honor to your country. And they're willing to just say, well, fuck that honor to the country, because I know that that will just lead to more death and destruction if I was to tell my country about what what my discovery is. Yeah. But that's a good point. Also from what you had to say um really made me think I need to rewatch community cuz you said community a lot and it's really hammered it in my brain. Sweet. <laughs> it makes me wonder if you're sponsored by NBC. <laughs> yes. I am. Um, good takeaway. <laughs> um Okay, so he decides he's going to use the weapon. People don't know that he's going to also die with the weapon so that it can never be used again. Before we go into this iconic final scene, let's just see if there's other stuff we have to say about these characters, the the, the four main characters. Starting with uh, Yamane, he's played by Takashi Shimura, who is a fucking prolific actor in Japan. This was like his 90th film or something like that. I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, yeah, there's a great detail about how two years before this, he starred in uh, Ikiru by Akira Kurosawa. And this was uh, 
one of Akira Kurosawa's two uh, favorite actors, along with uh, Toshiro Mifune. Toshiro Mifune was the kind of younger hotshot, and yeah. uh, Shimura was kind of like the usually uh, older, more reserved character that Kurosawa would use. Mifune is uh, the anyways. main character, is like the kind of comedic relief, right, in Seven Samurai, whereas Shimura is right. kind of like the main character. Right, so in Seven Samurai, Shimura is the first samurai, yeah. and he's kind of like the leader of the whole group, and he's very calm and reserved, and he scouts out the other samurais. Uh, Mifune is the seventh samurai, and he's like this, uh, uh, he's portrayed as kind of like a rash peasant who's just uh, very, um, not at all like the other samurais. He's the one who he has no sam- sword, right? Yeah, he has no samurai honor, and yeah. um, and then later you find out in the movie that uh, the the village that they're protecting has uh, killed samurai, and um, or not maybe they I can't remember exactly. Maybe they haven't killed them, but they've taken weapons from dead samurai, mm. um, and all the samurai get angry, and Mifune's character stands up and he's like, "What the fuck do you care? Like, like you." You shit on these people all the time, and now you're you're mad that they had the audacity to like take weapons to protect themselves and uh, to fight back against. Totally. It, but yeah, I think the implications his character has come from a community like this. Um, yeah. Which I don't remember exactly, and I'm drunk. Anyways, which by the way, really quick, I just want to say like Seven Samurai, one of the best movies ever made, one of my favorite movies came out the same fucking year as Godzilla, yeah. which is so crazy. And uh, <laughs> Takashi Shimura stars in both, and they are very different movies, but they are both so prolific and beautiful. And if if by some weird chance you're listening to a movie podcast and you haven't seen Seven Samurai, please just go spend the three hours. It's so worth it. But yeah, so Shimura, two years prior, she starred in Ikiru by Kurosawa, and the New York Times said that he was uh, possibly like the greatest actor in the world. And then in the review, in the New York Times review of Godzilla, they said like, no actor in this movie knows what they're fucking doing or basically something like that. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. This guy that you just said a couple of years ago was the greatest actor in the world doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> BRB Googling cemeteries. <laughs> 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 And Roger Ebert worked for the New York Times. Not true. <laughs> no. But yeah, I mean, um, Shamir is an incredible actor, and uh, he would uh, end up coming back in a couple different um, of the Godzilla movies. But yeah, he's mostly closely associated with uh, Kurosawa's movies. as one of Kurosawa's two most... Uh, common actors and yeah he's great he does an awesome job in this movie he i mean his character was clearly based a little bit on like the paleontologist in uh the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms which it is very similar to the uh i forget the word ant fucking scientist department of agriculture person in them but like he those people are just like silly caricatures in that in, in both of those movies but in this movie the character of Yamane is like 
until we get deeper towards the end of the movie in the moral center of Serizawa, like he is kind of the heart of the movie. Like he is the like guiding light of like rationality and heart um, and not just fucking bombing shit, you know, and he plays mm-hmm. it so well. And it like, it can't be easy to be playing that shit to like a fucking like rubber fucking suited, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And he, he plays it so well. Yeah. I mean, he's just an incredible actor. One kind of throwaway moment that I really liked is uh, when they're on Odo Island, he sees the trilobite on the ground and he picks it up and he's like, oh shit, this is amazing. And then someone kind of, I think it was the reporter, says to him like, oh, you shouldn't hold that. That's probably radioactive. And he just kind of, he does like a little nod and he's like, oh, oh yeah, you're right. Um, And it's just kind of... I. I don't know how to describe it. It's just, like I said, it's this throwaway moment where he's just like so intrigued and interested yeah. in what he's discovering that he doesn't kind of uh, consider that uh, the consequences that there might be actual danger to it. Well, not only just... not only that, but I don't know if you noticed. So he, he, they tell him that and he drops it into like a dish or whatever. And then he mm. goes back and scoops something else up because he's so curious and interested. Yeah. And so it, it it's, <laughs> I think that like on Honda and his parts, that's these subtleties that just show like the humanity, like we're, we're dealing with these circumstances that no human should need to ever deal with. And this is what it looks like for us as human animals to interact with these like otherworldly almost problems of like fucking yeah. radiation from a fucking bomb that created a monster, which is, <laughs> yeah. So, the the main three characters of the movie, Ogata, Amiko, and Serizawa, as you said, they form a love triangle, but it's it's not your typical love triangle. It's I don't know, it's complicated, but they're all kind of admirable and and the movie ends with um us seeing kind of how the, their relation to each other and kind of even even though it's difficult like supporting each other leads into this kind of tragic ending so i don't know charlie do you think we should just uh jump right into the to the final scene uh yeah i think so i feel like we've discussed that appropriately so one thing about the final scene obviously the final scene is um ogata and sarazawa diving into the water to use the oxygen destroyer to kill a godzilla one thing that kind of carries from the previous scene we were talking about in that is the bandage that Ogata gets on his head. Have you read or seen anything, Charlie, about the the connection between that and the Hachimaki headbands? I have no idea what you're talking about. Cool. So basically, when Ogata gets hurt, I believe it's during one of the attacks, um, he gets a white headband uh, of cloth like tied around his head mm-hmm. and then they go onto the boat and right before they go into the water like Sarazawa is like actually you should let me dive which to me was is a little bit of not a plot hole but like uh really you're just gonna at the last minute say you're gonna dive it felt mm-hmm. a little weird but that aside he's like I'm gonna dive let me do it and as he's saying that and or, or at some point in the sequence he puts a headband on so apparently these headbands, like these bandages, like when, when you get it on Ogata, it's supposed to look like kind of natural, but because it's a, he, he needs a bandage, 
But when Serizawa does it, it's just to do it. And apparently they, they're very similar to the Hachimaki, which were the uh, headbands used by kamikaze pilots. So it's actually oh, like shit. a little foreshadowing of yeah. Serizawa that he's about to fucking sacrifice himself for the greater good in their minds. It's um, fucking just kind of fucking intense. Yeah, that's gnarly. I did not know that. Uh, should also point out that suicide was uh, not allowed to be portrayed under the uh, American occupation censorship. Whoa. Maybe yeah. because of kamikaze pilots. Yeah, probably. So this was, but this was after that, so they were technically allowed to. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's fucking interesting. So yeah, like, I had read that Ogata's bandage is supposed to represent that, but I hadn't read anything about Surizawa. So when I watched it the last time, watching him put that on right before he's going down, I'm like, oh man, this is like fucking trying to tell us what's about to happen. That's insane. Yeah, that's gnarly. Yeah, I mean, this underwater footage, it's 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 some of the first i guess i think there was one movie that ishiro honda did with underwater footage before this but like i mean the effects are pretty awesome for this underwater footage and i mean first of all the music is fucking awesome for this underwater scene do you remember the music at all i don't off the top of my head but i'm sure i really loved it because i love the soundtrack to this movie totally yeah i I just feel like this ending just feels so different than what you would expect for a giant monster smashing buildings movie. Because usually you expect the monster to be a raging monster. Yeah. Instead, we have a sleeping monster. A right. monster that we've been built up to sympathize with in many different ways. Both in the sense that we know that this, is a char- uh, this, is, this monster has been created by humanity in terms of its uh extremeness i mean i guess it wasn't wholly created but but basically it's 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 radiation effects and it's uh yeah and it's been awoken by humanity and we've also been built to sympathize with from yamana's perspective of you know this is this is a true scientific marvel that we should be studying and here this is this sleeping creature and we go to use the ultimate weapon to destroy it, but the person who's using the ultimate weapon is... They know that if that weapon was known from humanity, it would just cause further misery and destruction way more than Godzilla himself could ever uh, enact upon humanity. So he decides to kill himself in the process in order to keep that weapon from from being common knowledge and yeah it's just it's just such a heavy heavy sequence when you really kind of put that all together in your head like jesus fucking christ like uh yeah we talk about them came out like the same year and i think i brought up like uh imagine which society uh was the victim of um you know atomic bombing (laughs) and it's just like it's just holy shit this is so fucking heavy if you really kind of put all the pieces together totally yeah i mean a victim like a a a person who's literally a victim of the war you know Mm -hmm. like not only in being just a fucking japanese person but the scars and the the 
the eye patch, all that, he's a victim of the war and him being like, I have to die so more war doesn't happen is so intense. Yeah. And then also you have on top of that, the character story where like, I feel like a lot of stories would have Ogata being like glad that Sarazawa's out of the way because of jealousy or whatever. But, but Ogata is yeah. so like horribly affected by Sarazawa's sacrifice. And then Sarazawa himself, he has the line where he says to the top, like, I hope you two are happy. I can't remember exactly what it was, something like that. And I've, I've heard people say that like, Oh, I, Oh, I think that was like a passive aggressive remark. Like, I hope you two are happy, but like from all of the lead up to this, I do not buy that at all. I, I personally take it as an absolute genuine, like, I want you two to be happy. Please don't feel guilty about this. This is what I had to do. It had nothing to do with you two. You know? Yeah, 100%. Anyone who thinks otherwise is an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> I um, But another thing about Serizawa is you mentioned his eye patch and the scars on his face from war. But, like, he got those because he believed in loyalty and honor to his nation. And by killing himself to keep this info from his nation, like that is completely juxtaposed to what we can surmise from his earlier stance of going through and being a a soldier who went through the horrors of war to cause the disfiguration to his face. He, he has in his mind an honor and loyalty to his nation, but he knows what that can rot on the world. And he, this so that really drives home the how how heavy of a decision this is um for totally him. it's it's such a fucking heavy and beautiful ending and i might enjoy watching other godzilla movies a lot more i might have more fun i might even like the politics of other ones more but this one is the only one that makes me feel like i'm going to fucking cry while talking about it like it's so fucking eh, 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 eh. The end of Son of Godzilla. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. I just mean, like, it's this, like, this, like, people call this this just a cheesy movie, but it's like a double layer of, like, the heaviest political fucking disaster, like, the, the, the heaviest human fucking death toll killing single, what? Ugh! It's just all this shit, and then on top of that, you have these, like, characters that are working so hard to do the right thing against all odds and against all preconceptions. It's fucking intense and it's really well done. And then it just, it not only does it end with a direct message from Yamane, which I really appreciate just to your face, but then it also just has this shot of like the ocean and the, the, the horizon that just gives you like a, a questioning mix of like joy and dread and beauty. Like it's, it's fucking well done. Yeah. And Yamani's final message where he says, if we continue conducting nuclear tests, you know, another Godzilla can come. It's, he's not putting the weight of the disaster and the doom on Godzilla. He's putting it on humanity. If we yeah. continue. If we continue what we're doing, Godzilla will raid again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but you really have to decode it. 
to get that. <laughs> you really? <laughs> okay. Well, that's a movie. We talked about a movie just now. And <laughs> took a lot out of me. I don't know about you. So I think it's time to rate this movie. <laughs> that seems so petty after all the things we've just said. <laughs> so... Okay, so for those who aren't familiar, uh, generally we have a rating system. We don't, like, give a point score. We just put them in a tier based on the series that they're in. So we have a specific series rating system for King Kong. We'll have one for Gamera, random ones for other kaiju movies. And for this one, it's going to be, like, a rating system based on all uh, Godzilla movies. We didn't come up with anything clever for this one. So at least for now, we'll see what happens. It's just going to be best possible movies in the series are S, then it goes down to A, B, C, D, and then F for the worst. Whose turn is it? Do you know? I don't know, but you should go first. Okay. I'm going to give this movie an S. <laughs> I, uh, I think this is one of the best Godzilla movies. Uh, I'm not saying it's the best one, but I think it is S tier. It is definitely not f tier the more i watch this movie the more i enjoy it there's a ton of stuff including like cinematography and music and uh, just there's a lot of stuff we didn't even get into that makes this movie what it is there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of shots we didn't even talk about but as a film this one gets better as i watch it i think it's good propaganda which i always appreciate fuck nukes and, of course, it had a giant influence uh, on the industry. So, for me, it's going to be an S. And I'm going to say S stands, in this case, for smash shit. <laughs> What's the lowest grade? F? Yeah. All right. Well, just kidding. Um, yeah, I'm actually... This is something I've been dreading. So... I watched God's. I watched this movie about a week and a half ago while completely undisturbed on my better TV with better sound in the dark, no interruptions. And then I watched it with commentary, and then I watched it while taking notes, and then I watched it while in the background while writing stuff. And I meant to watch it again after doing all my research and stuff. Um, so I'd have a different appreciation for the movie, but I didn't get time to do that. So I don't feel like I can fully respectfully evaluate it on its terms. Um, I feel like if I watched it tonight, it would ha I would have a whole different perspective than when I first watched it. Because, I mean, that wasn't the first time I watched it. I've watched it in the past. But I'm just saying with more knowledge about the movie and more appreciation for it, I think I would have a different perspective on it. But I have not been able to watch it since I've gained that knowledge and appreciation. So how do I grade this? Do I grade this on how I felt a week and a half ago when I watched it? Do I grade it how I feel while talking about it and realizing while discussing with you all this great stuff about it? Yes. Like, I, it's very hard to gauge. So, I mean, I would just say, personally, graded how you feel right now, we can always change it. Not how you yeah. felt when you watched it last, not how you felt in the middle of research, but how you feel now, right. and then you can always change it. 
Right. Well, uh, another thing I was going to add is I'm going to try to watch it within the next couple of weeks, and then I could do an update of how I feel about it. But as of right now, based on my initial perspective with what I feel through research and discussing it <laughs> is an A, as in ass. Yeah, that's a damn good ass, Godzilla. <laughs> Not um, Atomic Breath, the easy one. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, as in ass. Yeah, that's a good ass Atomic Breath, Godzilla. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> man i res i respect you i respect you being just wrong yeah. in front of everybody that's, that's i mean yeah i mean we <laughs> might have just lost all of our uh listeners like i get why it's an s i i 100 percent fucking get everything about why it's a great incredible movie totally just when i watched it in the past i've not fully gotten that while i'm watching it but I feel like in the future, now that I've done so much more research about it and I've gone more in depth, that that might be different. But I have not been able to... Look, let's not parse anything. Let's not get... Let's be fucking real. <clears throat> For sure. <laughs> Charlie's fucking position right now is pretty much the same position that Ogata, Sarazawa... And Amika were in. It's a complicated situation. Okay. There's no right answer. It's nuanced. And I, for one, appreciate Charlie being honest with us and taking the fucking high road. You know what I mean? You're the hero of this goddamn podcast. Okay. I, I love that take. I completely love that take. I thought you were going to be like, Charlie's position is the same position as the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cut that just for posterity. <laughs> uh, can you can you somehow, even though it's fake, respond to what I said in a way that's not just super randomly referencing Nazis? <laughs> it wasn't super randomly. That's yes. legitimately what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> Why? I, I thought you were going to try to like paint me as a bad person for not giving uh, Godzilla an S. Nope. <laughs> Did you give it one and a half stars? Answer me that. No, I gave it... What? Yeah, so I wouldn't fucking dig up your grave. <laughs> oh. Forgot about the Ebert. All right. Well, thank you for listening to this long fucking episode. If you want to find us uh, on Twitter, we are at NoGodsPod. If you want to email us, it's NoGodsPod at gmail.com. And hell, we never said this before. Fuck it. Please give us a review on uh, iTunes or anywhere else you can. That really helps people find us. And um, I have no concluding thoughts other than Man, that was a lot of research and shit, and I'm glad to be done with it. But also, I really appreciate that movie more, even more than I did before. Yeah. Just realized I forgot that I wanted to go into how I uh, really understand why chicks love Godzilla, because he portrays the bad boy archetype perfectly. And I forgot to delve into that, and I'm pretty upset right now. Super important. Hear that? 
chicks. <laughs> <laughs> End of episode. <laughs>